with a dedicated team of reporters, editors, It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight we're kicking off our consideration of programming for young audiences in old-time radio with radio's outstanding children's theater as it billed itself, Let's Pretend. A couple of Oscar-winning movie stories are on tap, Gaslight from Screen Guild Theater, and the radio precursor of All About Eve from Radio City Playhouse. Plus Fibber McGee and Molly, Gunsmoke, Theater 5, Dragnet, and the intriguing Subways Are For Sleeping from the CBS Radio Workshop. There's lots to dive into, so take a deep breath, relax, put aside any cares left over from last week, postpone worrying about the week ahead, and let your imagination do all the work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. The man with the action-packed expense account usually has wonderfully cordial relationships with the insurance men who employ him. But tonight, he encounters a terribly unpleasant one and finds himself in the hot seat. It's a case called The Wayward Gun Matter, and when it's over, stay tuned for the details of how you can join WAMU at our big broadcast movie night coming up next month. That announcement follows this June 3rd, 1962 episode of CBS's Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar? Dollar, this is Adolf Dorfman at Amalgamated Life Association. Oh, uh, yes, Mr. Dorfman. Where the devil have you been? I've been trying to get you for days. Well, I've been out of town, sir, in Las Vegas on a special assignment. Oh, never mind, never mind. Just get yourself over to this office, Dollar, and run away. Well, now, Mr. Dorfman... Just what do you think you're up to, anyway? This is absurd. This is ridiculous. If you say it is, I'm sure it must be. Of course it is. Do you mind telling me what you mean by it? The Cleet Martin case. What did you think I was talking about? I wasn't quite sure. But don't tell me you have solved it and just haven't bothered reporting to me. No, Mr. Dorfman, I have not solved it as yet, but I think I'm on the right track. You think? You think, don't you know? No, because there is one possible clue to be checked out before I can be certain. Yes? Certain of what? That it actually is a clue to that murder. What? Do you mean to say you've been wasting valuable time and a lot of company money on just... just... Just theories about that killing? That you haven't really accomplished a thing? Mr. Dorfman... Oh, that's ridiculous. And what about this expense account you've sent in? And the fact it's marked incomplete, no total given? Does that mean I'm to expect another one? Yes, it does, Mr. Dorfman. Maybe more than one by the time I'm through. Oh, that's ridiculous. Whatever gave you the idea we'd pay you before the case is closed? Why do you expect us to pay you now? I don't. Then why send in these itemized expenses? Because you yourself demanded I send in my expense account on Friday of each week, whether complete or not. Yeah, oh, uh, uh, now look here. Some of these, these, these items you've listed, these charges you've run up... When it's all over, all wrapped up, I'll be glad to explain every one of them to you. Not a bit of it, Dollar. You get yourself on over here and start explaining them now. Why, I, I, I've been trying to reach you for days. As I tried to tell you, Mr. Dorfman, if I... If you have anything to tell me, you can say it to my face, not waste my time on this telephone. Well, you're coming over here. 
I certainly am. The CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer and the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Amalgamated Life Associates Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the wayward gun matter. Adolf Dorfman always had been, always would be a short-tempered, crotchety old maid. Nothing but trouble on a case. But Amalgamated Life Mostly through Al Spangler, a VP and a very nice guy, has done mighty well for me over the years. So when Dorfman called me in on the Martin case, I couldn't very well turn him down in spite of resenting his high-handed manner. Expense account item one, $1.10 for a cab to his office. Oh, all right, all right, I'll accept that one. But look at this item right here. four eighty for a tank full of gasoline. Because I used my own car to go over there to Lakewood. Yeah, but four eighty. When you could have made the trip on a bus for less than two dollars? Sure, sure I could. Then why didn't you? Then we'd have had to spend eight or ten dollars in taxi fares between the Martin home and police headquarters. Is that what you would have preferred? Yeah, well, no, 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 of course not. But just the same, Look, Dollar, We're you just can't... wasting time here, if you'll excuse me. Yeah, we're wasting time, you In huh? the beginning, you'd question every single item on this expense account. You always do. And why not? And that's why, instead of handing one in that would give you some real cause for worry, I decided for once to keep expenses down to the barest minimum. But it hasn't done the least bit of good. So if you don't mind... Uh, minimum? What about this? One seventy-five for lunch. What about it? Do you deny that it included an overgenerous tip to some pretty waitress? The tip was exactly twenty-five cents, and it came out of ah, my... there. You see, a twenty-five cent tip on a dollar and a half meal—that's ridiculous. I started to say the tip came out of my own pocket, Mister Dorfman. If you don't believe me, take a look at the cash register slip. It's right there. Go ahead, look at it. All right, all right, all right. I'll take your word for it. The fact remains that you still haven't solved the case. I think I have. You think you have. But I'd rather not talk about it just yet. Well, I don't know why not. You either know who killed Mr. Cletus Martin or you don't. Now, which is it? I'll be able to give you the whole story, I hope, after I get a phone call from New York and not before. New York? Yes. From a friend of mine at 18th Precinct Police Headquarters. Oh, so that explains this item here. Return ticket to New York and several cab fares. That's right. But why? What possible connection can they have with the Martin matter? They just happen to have a top ballistics technician. Ballistics? What's the matter with the police in Lakewood? Not a thing. Or with their county police over there? Not a thing. Then why go all the way to New York? Because once I've got hold of the picture of the bullet that killed Mr. Martin, I didn't want Lakewood or Lakewood County to know what I intended doing with it. Why? I'd rather not say... Now, you've had these items explained, so if you'll excuse now, me... No, 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 Wait, wait, Dollar. Sit down, sit down. There is see. nothing further I can do until I get my call from New York. Oh, but there is. Uh, there's uh, something else I want to talk to you about. The really important reason I sent for you. Well, I hope it's a lot more important than quibbling about this expense account. Oh, it is, it Then is. why the big stall? Why all the waste of time? A stall? Yes. I don't know why, Mr. Dorfman, but that's all you've been doing for the last ten minutes, installing me. Oh, no, 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 not a bit of it, not a bit. I was merely, I, I was only, uh, uh, now sit down, please, sit down. All right. Well, what is it? You, uh, 
Say you were out of town? I was in Las Vegas, but it had nothing whatsoever oh, to yes, do with... Oh, yes, 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 yes. So that's it. That's the reason we couldn't find you anyway. We? I mean, I. I couldn't find you. Yes, that's uh, very pleasant out there at this time of year, isn't it? Look, will you please quit stalling again and tell me what this other important matter is? All right. All right, all right, all right. Uh, have you seen the papers? Did you know another client of ours just met a violent end? Mr. Barryman, here in Hartford? Yes, Alfred W. Barryman. You didn't know him? No, nor that he was a client of yours. Nor that he was a big contractor like Mr. Martin? No. Now, uh, do you plan to assign me to that case, too? Do we have to? Of course you don't. And if you want the truth, Mr. Dorfman, if you're the company contact on it, so why wait until now to tell me? Why waste all that time picking away at the expense account? Don't you know? I certainly don't. Now, what goes? I would give... Ah, uh, now you may know. Come in, Sergeant. All right, Mr. Dorfman. How about this? Johnny Dollar, huh? That's right, Sergeant... Uh... Sergeant Bill Anseth. I told you I'd find him for you, Sergeant. I don't know how you did it. What is this? All we know was he'd left time, Mr. Dorfman. Wait a minute. Why the gun, Sergeant? You ought to know. Up in your feet, Dollar. You mind telling me what this is all about? Just hand me your gun, Dollar. That nice big thirty-eight you carry. Well, what's the matter? I'm sure I don't know. It's for my thirty-eight. I don't happen to have it on me at the moment. I know. What? Because we got it, Dollar. Serial number and all down at headquarters. And maybe that's the reason I'm holding you on suspicion of murder. Sergeant's bombshell wasn't repeatable. Me, Johnny Dollar, arrested on suspicion of murder by a cop with a grudge, fingered by a tight-fisted people hater named Amalgamated Life Dorfman. Thanks, Mr. Dorfman, for latching on for us. Yeah, pleasure, Sergeant. Now, wait a minute, Sergeant. If you're talking about the Martin matter... Now, don't try and kid me, Dollar. We got you nailed down for the murder of that other contractor, Barryman. What? <laughs> and he pretended not to know much about it. It was almost evasive when I brought it up. That explains all your stalling. Waiting for this man to get here. I did very well. Oh, you were great. Next week, East Lynn. Now, look, Sergeant... No time for talk, Tyler. On to headquarters now, and account of you happen to be under arrest. I am. Quite so. In which case, I'm entitled to one phone call, am I not? Sure, if you want to call a mouthpiece, you're entitled. You mind if I use your phone, Mr. Dorfman? No, not at all, not at all. Thank you so much. Provided, of course, you pay for the call. Don't bank on it. I beg your pardon? Don't be surprised if you end up paying for it. Through the nose. My call was to Lieutenant Randy Singer, 18th Precinct, New York Police Department. Now, he still had no word for me, but he promised to call the minute he did, so I told him where to try if I wasn't at my apartment. Okay, now, Johnny, you ready? Look, are you sure this isn't some kind of a gag? Are you kidding? Because if it is, it's a pretty bad one. Sergeant, don't you know who I am? I mean, what my job yeah, is? Yeah, 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 Dallo. I know all about you. What a great guy you are. Thanks. And nobody wasn't any more surprised than me. But Lieutenant Bartley don't go off half-cocked, and you know it. Bartley? So when he says to bring you in, well, baby, in you go. He sent you after me, Harry Bartley? Lieutenant Bartley. Now, come on. Now, Lieutenant, you want me to book him now, lock him up? In a couple of minutes, Sergeant. Yes, sir. 
Well, Johnny, I'll say this for you, Harry. Yeah? When you pull a boner, you really do. Wasn't that one of the gentlemen of the press outside there? Yep, no doubt he's on the phone to his paper right now. Harry, this is ridiculous. Is it? You know me better than to think I could have killed this, this barrowman, is it? When your own gun was found beside the body, when a bullet from it killed him... Just oh, make let me, me handle this, Sergeant. Uh, yes, sir. Right. Look at the facts, Johnny. You've been on the Martin case up in Lakewood, haven't you? That's right. But you've been stalling on it. But there is reason for that. You even left town, went to Vegas, presumably on another investigation. It was on another investigation. Would you like some verification? No, no, I'll take your word for it. Thanks a lot. But you found no real clue to the Martin murder, did you? Have you forgotten the microphoto of the bullet that you got for me? No, but you didn't tell me why, Johnny. Why'd you want that? Because maybe it was his gun did that killer. So, so he figured on changing the barrel. So the markings wouldn't look like that bullet. Okay, Sergeant. Yes, sir, yes, Let me go on, Johnny. Please do. Then Barrowman got killed here in Hartford. And he's also a contractor bidding on that redevelopment project there in Lakewood County. Is there a tie-up, Johnny? Are you kidding, Lieutenant? Sergeant. Don't you say? There's some other contractor wants that business and hires Dollar to knock him off. Well, Johnny, Harry, if you'll get rid of Big Mouth here for a couple of minutes... Hey, now, just a minute, baby. Okay, okay, Sergeant. I'll call you when I watch you. But didn't you hear when he just called me? Yes, I heard. Just close the door quietly. Go on. Yes, sir. All right, now, Harry. I've held out on things, but for good reason. Don't you know about the rotten political situation up there in Lakewood? Well, I've heard some things. Well, then you know the contracting job on that redevelopment project is going to be one big juicy plum for somebody. I know. And who gets it depends, unfortunately, on one man. On one politician whose own brother just happens to be in the contracting business. Do you know the man I mean? This Mr. Politics I'm talking about? Yes, I'm afraid I do. And he's powerful enough to make things pretty rough for you or me or anybody else who might cross him. Are you saying that he might have killed Martin? Exactly. Killed off one of his brother's competition. And the same for Barrowman's death? Yes. And for the same reason. Because there is no doubt that Mr. Barrowman or Mr. Martin could have underbid Mr. Dirty Politics' brother if they stayed alive. So with that in mind, I call him Mr... On this politician. On what excuse, Johnny? Just to suggest some possible changes in his insurance. He fell for it and he let me in. And Harry, there in his study on the wall, he had quite a collection of guns. Most of them flintlocks. Very old and very well cared for. Flintlocks? But I also spotted one half hidden behind some books on a shelf that was a dead ringer for the gun I always carry. Same make, same model, same caliber and finish. Oh, so by the simple device of dropping a lighted cigarette into his wastebasket, starting a little fire, well, while he was throwing it outside, I switched guns on him. Why, Johnny? So that I could have his checked against the microphoto you gave me of the bullet that killed Mr. Martin. Checked there in Lakewood? Oh, no. Why not? Because if my hunch was wrong, Harry, and if it got around, that man could make more trouble, could hurt more people than you or I ever dreamed of. And his first target would be the Lakewood police who made the checkup. You can be thankful that you don't have that kind of politics to contend with. I am. But if you're right, if his gun matches that bullet... Then he's through, Harry. The big construction job will be handed out legitimately. And more important, Lakewood and Lakewood County will be clean for the first time in years. And you'll have your killer. Yes, if this story of your switching guns is true. If it's true? Yeah, Harry, you've got to be kidding. 
Don't you see now why I've had to go this thing alone? If it was his gun that killed Martin. If not, the story about your gun, why it was used for the Barrowman killing, is going to sound pretty fishy. What do you mean? Johnny, we know only one thing. It was your gun that killed Alfred Barrowman. And I've told you why. Yeah, but what if the tests show your gun also killed Martin? Harry, that's impossible. When Martin died, I had my gun in my own possession. That's exactly what I mean. Now, wait a minute. Sergeant, answer. Harry, will you wait a minute? Yeah, Lieutenant. You can lock him up now. What? Yes, sir. It'll be a pleasure. Only first I better book him, hadn't I? Oh, uh, just leave that to me. Harry, you're out of your ever-loving mind. Am I? Come along, Dollar. Shut up. Okay, Lieutenant. Thanks, Hanley. I'll call you. Yes, sir. Well, it seems to me the least you can do is ask me to sit down, Johnny. Sure, jail, Harry. Make yourself at home. Thanks. <laughs> Cigarette? No, thanks. I have one. Now, what goes, Harry? Well, don't you believe what I told you last night? You've seen the morning paper? Yes, and I'm sure you went out of your way to have it brought into me. That's right. And the cigarettes and extra coffee and the reporters who call on you. Did you tell him anything? You know darn well I didn't. Yeah, I thought you'd clam up on huh? Harry, don't you see what you've done to me to my reputation in this town? You think so? I'll never live down this boo-boo of yours. And worst of all, you're letting a killer run around loose. I am? Well, wasn't it your idea to try to pin the Martin murder on him, too, as a clincher? Of course it was, but... Look, Harry, will you listen to me? Sure, if you think it'll do you any good. Now, I'm expecting a call. A very important one. Yeah, from where? From whom? Well, you wouldn't like it if I told you because I didn't contact you instead. But I had to stay away from this territory to prevent even the remotest possibility of a leak. But if you'll let me out long enough to take that call when it comes in, and I told him to try to reach me here... Don't you mean if it comes in? No, I mean when. It'll be a ballistics report on the gun. His gun. As compared to the photo of that bullet that killed Martin. But what if they don't tell you what you've hoped for? Harry, don't you see there is still a matter of my gun? I know. Well, don't you believe what I told you about it, about the switch? Lieutenant, I've got an urgent one for you, a real urgent, up in your office. Okay, Hanley, thanks. Harry, listen to me. You've got to let me out of here to get that call. We'll see. Behave yourself, Johnny. Well, what is it this time, Hanley? I don't get it, Dollar, but out you go. Well, thank you. Come on, I'll lead the way. You uh, mind telling me where we're going? Sure. Up to Lieutenant Bartley's office. Phone call for me? Uh, gee, how should I know? Come on, let's find out. This could be very important. Now, take it easy. Huh? My feet hurt. Hey, listen. Yeah? Tell me one thing. How come a smart man like you didn't get a lawyer to spring you? Only one reason. I know your Lieutenant Bartley a little better than he thinks. Huh? At least I hope I do, because if I don't, if he's pulled the boo-boo, it looks as though he's pulled. Well, come on in, Johnny. I have a little surprise for you. Oh, uh, that's all, Hanley, and thanks. Yes, sir. Now, this had better be good, Harry. Believe me, Johnny, it is. Oh, uh, sit down. Thanks, but that's all I've been doing for the last 15 now, hours. listen. Now, that urgent call I got when I had to leave you a couple of hours ago? Yeah. Well, it was a phone call for you. Randy Singer in New York? Have you forgotten he's an old friend of mine, too? But look, look here, see? This is a transcript of his call. Let me see. Kind of proves you were right, Johnny. 
It was that gun of Mr. Dirty Politics that killed Cletus Martin. I knew it, Harry. It had to be. And, of course, that gives full credence to what you told me about switching with him. And that means that he also killed Alfred Berriman. No doubt about it. So, once again, Johnny, one of your crazy hunches paid off. That hunch was based on plenty of known facts. Anyway, you're a hero again. Oh, some hero after spending a night in the clink, after being booked in a murder charge? My name is Mud. Uh, booked? Well, certainly by you. Johnny, you know, I must have forgotten to. What? Yeah, so if you want to sue me for holding you illegally... Oh, if I had any sense, I probably would. (laughs) But now, would you make with a good reason for all this, Harry? Well, it's a trick I learned a long time ago from a fellow. A man I've admired for a long time, Johnny. You. Me? Yeah, I suspected Mr. Dirty Politician, too. As would anybody who really knew about his methods and his machinations. All his shady deals up there in Lakewood. So? So, stealing a page from your book... I decided that the best way to throw him off, make him careless, keep him around here feeling smug, was to broadcast that we had absolute proof of your guilt. Uh-huh. And don't you see, with not only the papers, but even the boys here on the force believing it, well, he couldn't possibly smell a rat. Mm. As a result, instead of running away, well, we picked him up right here in Hartford. Well, that's all very fine for you, Harry. And when I faced him with a report on his gun that killed Martin, and then... Told him about the switch with your gun that he then used on Barrowman. Well, believe it or not, Johnny, and so help me, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I was that surprised. Yeah. Johnny, this smart, clever old crook, got so rattled, so completely confused, he broke down and made a full confession. Congratulations, Harry. <laughs> you have made a real hero of yourself. Uh, of myself? Mm. But I just wonder how long it's going to take me to live down that phony newspaper story. But you have, Johnny. You have. I have, huh? Sure. Just wait till you see that afternoon edition. Giving you full credit for the whole stunt. Oh? That's right, Johnny. The only hero on this case is you. Well, now, wait a minute. (laughs) I mean, after all, Harry, you're the one who wrapped it all up. Oh, yeah? But where would I be if you hadn't laid all the groundwork? If I hadn't got the idea for this little trick from some of those cases of yours? Absolutely nowhere. No, Johnny... It's yours. All yours. After this, I think I'd better keep my tricks to myself. Now, wait a minute. How can I? When every case I handle gets broadcast all over the country. Well, I guess I just can't win. Expense account total? Well... All I want now is one big, fat apology from meddling old Adolf Dorfman at Amalgamated Life for having trapped me into that night in jail. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, San Francisco and a ship. A most unusual ship. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Fred Hendrickson, music supervision by Ethel Huber, sound patterns by Joseph Cabibbo. 
Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Robert Dryden as Adolph Dorfman, Ralph Bell as Sergeant Anseth, Martin Blaine as Lieutenant Bartley, and Nat Poland as Hanley the Guard. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and the wayward gun matter from the spring of 1962 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Now, as promised, here's how you can get in on our big broadcast movie night, Thursday evening, May 19th, at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in Silver Spring. It's a rare screening of The Big Broadcast of 1938, starring Bob Hope, W.C. Fields, Ben Blue, Martha Ray, and many other old-time radio personalities. For tickets, go to wamu.org slash events. That's wamu.org slash events. And, as Johnny Dollar always says, join us, won't you? Before this hour is out, we're going to start our examination of children's old-time radio shows. So, attention, younger listeners. Please persuade the adults around you to let you stay up just another 40 minutes or so. Right now, though... We're going to hear some very typical Fibber McGee behavior, and it centers on what may be a very familiar activity these days, driving around looking for the cheapest gas station. It's an episode from November 7th, 1954. Gas was a little bit less expensive back then. And NBC's Fibber McGee and Molly. It's time for Fibber McGee and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber McGee and Molly Transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Ralph Goodman and directed by Max Hutto. We'll hear our story in a minute after Fibber and Molly warm up a bit. You know, McGee, taking off your shoes is one of the best feelings in the world. Next to coming home. Yeah. Bet most of us don't think about coming home at all until we think about how we'd feel if we couldn't. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you go along month after month paying rent on your apartment or paying off the mortgage on your home with never a thought to what might happen if you... Now, hold on there, kiddo. Wait a minute. Just remember, there is one way to make sure your home stays your home, and that's with a Prudential Mortgage Cancellation Plan. Mm-hmm. Folks, with this plan included in your insurance program, you don't have to worry about keeping a roof over your family's head. The Prudential Insurance Company guarantees the money to pay off the mortgage on your home, even if Dad dies unexpectedly before it's all paid. Oh, McGee, that's wonderful. How much does it cost? For most families, the yearly cost is less than 1% of the amount you borrowed. I think the Prudential's home protection plan is a wonderful idea. And if you think so, too... Call your Prudential agent and let him tell you about the mortgage cancellation plan. Or, if you live in an apartment, Prudential's rent payment plan. Take care of it soon, huh? This sure is a nice day for a drive. Yes, just beautiful. I love the brisk fall weather. The air has such a merry crispness to it. A what? A Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year to you. (laughs) Don't you get it, kiddo? You said... Where do you want to go? You name it and I'll drive you there to pay you back for that corny joke I just made. (laughs) Well, we'd have to visit the Taj Mahal to make things even on that one. 
Let's see now. Anywhere I want, huh? Yep, you just name it. Well, uh, how about... Uh, how about Frank's Garage? That sounds like a perfect place, and it's a good thing we're right near there, because... What the heck's the matter with this? Uh-oh. Out of gas. Well, there's Frank's on the corner. You think we'll make it? Just keep your fingers crossed, kiddo. I'll coax her along. Easy, easy. Yeah. Ah, I just made it. Looks like Frank's busy with another Be customer. Be with you in a minute, folks. There you are, ma'am. Thank you. Oh, that's Mrs. Atherton, McGee. Who? Hello, Mrs. Atherton. How's the baby? Oh, just fine, thanks. How's your little Edgar? Edgar? Oh, she's the one that thinks... I'm Mrs. Cronin, yes. Oh, yeah. Edgar's all right, thank you. Took a fall off his tricycle yesterday and bumped his head, though. Oh, I hope it wasn't serious. Oh, no, he looks better now. Flattened out his pointed head a little. McGee. Oh, well. Just a little bump. He's all right. Well, nice seeing you, dear. Give my regards to Gloria May. Right. Well, if that ain't the silliest routine... Now, I... then, what can I do for you, folks? Oh, hello, Mrs. McGee. Hello, Mr. Fuller. We need some gas. Yeah, and you are the nearest. I mean, naturally, when I need gas, I always come to you, Frank. Oh, you do, huh? Well, I sure do. Well, then you got the only car in town that gets 380 miles to the gallon. Don't kid me, Fib. If it wasn't for this price war we're all mixed up in, you'd be out at the serve yourself joint on the highway. Price war? Well, certainly. Mean to tell me you haven't heard about it? No, we were just going out for a drive this afternoon, Frank, and we ran out... Yeah, we ran out this way to buy some gas from you, Frank. Price is way down, huh? How much is it? We're down from 31 cents a gallon to 27.9. Oh. We don't like it, but we got to keep up with the competition. Prices have been fluctu... fluctu... jumping up and down ever since this thing started. Well, I guess this is our lucky day, dearie. Yep, our loss is your game, McGee. Uh, how much you want? Well, uh... Oh, just give me the usual, Frank. What? Oh, McGee, 50 cents worth? You heard Mr. Fuller say there's a price for on. He's already cut his price three cents a gallon. Let's fill it up. And... No, sir. I'm not the type of guy that he takes advantage of a friend who's forced to sell at a loss to keep up with the competition. No, sir. We'll just take enough to get us back home, Frank. Well, Gino, that's a pretty swell attitude, Fib. I sure had you figured all wrong, Sure. You'll have to forgive me for them disparaging... Dispar lousy remarks made a while ago. Ah, uh, think nothing of it, Frank, old man. Just put in a half a buck's worth so we can get home, and as soon as the prices stop fluxing, flux, jumping up and down, we'll be back. You right, Molly? Quick, what does it say on that side of the street? 22 cents a gallon. The one across the street says 21 and a half. And over there to the left, it's 21 and a quarter. Boy, oh boy, it's getting lower all the time. Imagine that, down from 31 cents. Yes, sir. I'll bet before this 50 cents worth of gas runs out, we'll find a place for 18 cents. Or maybe even 17. Maybe, but I think it was a kind of a sneaky way to fool Mr. Fuller like that. Well, that's the business world for you, kiddo. Dog eat dog. Anyways, I wouldn't tell old Frank we were going to scout around for a better price. I'm too soft-headed for that. You mean soft-hearted, don't you? I mean my head's too soft. You saw that monkey wrench in his hand, didn't you? Frank's an okay guy, all right, but he's what's known in the garage set as the emotional type. With customers like you, I can see how he gets that way. Hey, there's our place. Look there. We'll never beat that price. 19 point... No, wait. Hey, there's one for 18 point... Oh, there's one down the street for... No. Yeah, hey, oh, look at that one. Oh, isn't this silly? Silly. <laughs> There's more fun with the McGee's shortly. 
While authorities on the subject tell us that no child is born a juvenile delinquent, they are quick to add that he may be shaped that way by the factors of his environment. Give a child a good, clean, healthy home and community life, and he'll be more likely to turn out a useful citizen. Youngsters from broken homes and disturbed conditions in the home are usually the ones who head for trouble. But even these youngsters can be directed and helped. A generous portion of your community chest contribution goes to help children in such circumstances and also goes to help those needing hospitalization, clinical service, and care. We all benefit by living in the healthy community that meets its needs. We benefit from the knowledge that hospitals, clinics, youth organizations, and other services are open to all those who have the means to pay, and those who have not. Give to the community chest or United Fund drives now being conducted in your community. The services they support belong to you. Look, McGee, we've been up and down this boulevard six times now. And... I know, but before we go back to that 16 cents a gallon place, I just want to be sure that's the best deal. I hate to be took. Oh, dear, you'd better make up your mind pretty soon because we're getting low again. Hey, stupid. What's the idea of sticking your hand out the window like that if you're not going to turn? My hand ain't sticking out the window. Oh, beg your pardon. It's your ears. <laughs> well, Dr. Gamble. Oh, him. Very funny, Fatso. Hi, kids. Pull over, McGee. I want to talk to you. Okay, pull up ahead. Hey, maybe Doc knows where there's a good buy. He drives around a lot. Hiya, Molly. Where you kids going? Around in circles, mostly, Doctor. We had planned on going for a drive out in the country, but ever since McGee found there's a gasoline price war on... Yeah, hey, Fatso, do you know where they got the best deal? Our tank's nearly empty, and I... Oh, a guy like you shouldn't have to pay for the stuff, McGee. What you mean? Well, the way you keep gassing with that mobile mouth of yours, all Molly has to do is pump your arm and you'll have enough to last all winter. Ah, look, I got no time to bandy words, bandy legs. I got to <laughs> fill my gas tank. I saw a place back there for 16 cents a gallon. You seen it anywhere any cheaper, any place? Nope, that's the lowest price in town. Okay, what'd you want to see me about? A microscope. I just wondered if you'd be interested in a good used microscope for a dollar. But if you're in such a hurry, hey, I... Hey, 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 wait a minute. Huh? A buck for a good microscope? Used? Well, you're always fooling around with mine when you come to the office, so I thought that... But if you're not interested... Wait a minute. Sure I'm interested. Well, it's at the hospital. Huh? I'm on my way over there now, so if you'll let me have your dollar... A buck, huh? Sure, sure. Thanks for telling me about it, George. Here you are. Thanks. And here you are. What's this? Your raffle ticket. What? They're holding the drawing and surgery tonight to help send Doc Fredericks to Hawaii on his honeymoon. What? Why, Why you... Hello, so pal. Well, thanks for the contribution. Why? There it is again, Molly. Sixteen cents a gallon. Imagine that. Down from 31 cents. Yeah. Now, I guess that's the lowest price in town. You guess. If you don't know, nobody does. Pull in there and fill up the tank and let's go home. It's almost 3 o'clock. We've wasted this whole day just... Okay, okay. I guess there's no sense overdoing this thing. You know, this looks like rock bottom. And a few tents here and there won't make much difference. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Look at this sign. Now what? Yes, sir. Regular rental. Hmm? Oh, oh, uh, oh, no. Uh, uh, we just stopped in to, to, to use the phone, bud. Uh, that okay? Oh, sure. It's in the station there. Help us out. The phone? McGee, what's this all about? I thought you were going to... Well, I was, until I noticed his sign. Look at that. Five-gallon limit. 
If that's the case, we'll do better across the street at that other place, Slim Station. Oh, McGee, for heaven's sake. It's five-tenths of a cent more, but there's no limit in the way I figured. Oh, wait a minute. Am I figuring that right? Five-tenths of a... Open the glove compartment and give me a pencil and paper. I'll work this thing out and... Let's see, six and seven-eighths times four and three-fifths. Move the cipher over and move the drop the thing under the... What's that? What did I do with that decimal point? McGee, I've had enough. If this isn't the most ridiculous thing I Look, ever... Look, it'll only take another minute, Molly. I nearly... Hey, get... you folks still here? Nothing wrong with that phone of mine, is there? Oh, no. Uh, we, uh, we've been trying to figure... Uh, well, do you mind if I use the phone a minute? i got an important call to make. Oh, no. Go right ahead. Thanks. I won't be a minute. Okay. Now, let's see. Where was I? Oh, yeah. If we go across the street to Slim's and get 10 gallons at 16.5... Slim? Morgan. Yeah, just got the word. Gas war is over. Yeah, you put up your old sign again. Ain't that great? You're right. Oh, no. Say, would you folks mind backing your car up? I want to take that 16-cent sign down and put up the old sign. Boy, happy days are here again. Oh, this is ridiculous. say goodnight to Fibber and Molly in a moment. Tomorrow starts another busy week. And so here's a suggestion to brighten your busy work days. Just let NBC Radio accompany you morning and afternoon. You'll hear a series of outstanding programs designed to help your weekday along. Strike It Rich, for example. That's an exciting daily morning feature, bringing you lots of quiz fun, plus some wonderful and inspiring stories. Strike It Rich is the program we call the show with a heart. And for a good reason, because it's the program that lends a helping hand to people in need from all over the world. Warren Hull is the master of ceremonies, and you'll enjoy each minute of it. Strike it rich yourself in top-notch entertainment tomorrow morning. And don't forget your other big daytime favorites. The phrase that pays for more quiz fun. Just plain Bill and Woman in Love for dramatic entertainment. And Pauline Frederick reporting for all the latest news. You'll hear them all and many more brought to you all through the week by NBC Radio, your guide to the best in listening. Ah, well, there we are. The old sign's back up again. We're all set. Yeah, that's peachy. Look at his prices, will you, Molly? This must be the most expensive place in town. 32 cents here, and all the others are 31. Murder. Let's get out of this jib joint, kiddo. We may as well go back to Frank. No sense letting this guy take advantage of us. Empty. Hmm. Give me a gallon. Good night. Good night, all. Fibber McGee and Molly is an NBC Radio Network production transcribed. With Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble, Jack Crucian as the service station operator, and Natalie Masters as Mrs. Atherton. Well, the McGees get word tomorrow that a long unseen relative is coming to visit. How McGee reacts to this news is the story we'll bring you then. This is John Wall saying goodnight. Strange but true, 19 cents a gallon for gas. They should have gotten it while the getting was good. They, being Fibber McGee and Molly, 
in the fall of 1954. You heard them here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. One of the big areas of old-time radio we don't explore often enough is the programming targeted to young audiences. When our co-producer Jill Arold Bailey mentioned on our Facebook page that we planned to feature more of it, she asked you to share with us some of the kids' shows you'd like to hear, and your response was tremendously encouraging. So, kids and adults alike, please keep it up. Get in touch with us via email or social media and let us know a title or two that you'd like us to broadcast. After tonight, we're going to try to play a show for young people at about this time, 7.30 or so, every other week, beginning next week, May 1st, for the next few months. If you're a young person, you'll be really interested to hear how old-time radio treated people your age, and we're going to start with one of the longest-running shows. It's called Let's Pretend, and as we're going to hear, it was performed before a bunch of young people called The Pretenders, who actually played all the roles in the radio play. Some were little, and some, as we'll hear, were a little grown up. Unlike some of the children's television that we see nowadays, like Sesame Street or Daniel Tiger, most of the programs in old-time radio were used to sell stuff. In the case of Let's Pretend, it was the breakfast cereal called Cream of Wheat. But it is radio, and it really makes you use your imagination. The stories on Let's Pretend were fantastic tales of fairies, witches, kings, queens, and colorful settings. See what you think of this one. It's called Melalot, and it comes from 75 years ago. Gee, that's even before I was born. August 23, 1947. It's the CBS series, Let's Pretend. American Family Cereal presents Let's Pretend. Yeah! Well, thank you for that rip snorting round of applause, pretenders. Oh, so you want a story, do you? And you shall have it. When? Sybil, what's the story for today? It's an exciting one called Melilot. Well, that's a new one on me, Sybil. And it's Betty Jane Tyler's turn to say how we travel. How about a brand new convertible car with a top down? Oh, swell idea, Betty Jane. Okay, an open car it is. And, uh, say, I think we better make it two so there'll be plenty of room for everybody. All set? Yeah. One, two, three. <laughs> These cars for Let's Pretend... Our story, Melalot and Points Out. All right, let's go. Say, this is one of those brand new 1947 models, isn't it? There's sure plenty of smoothness and power in this car. You said it, Gwen. And that's the same happy combination you'll find in cream of wheat. Yes, a creamy, delicious smoothness. 
and the kind of quick pickup food power that helps keep you rolling along in high gear right through the morning. So shift to good old cream of wheat, friends. Eat a better breakfast, feel better all day. Get a better start, the cream of wheat way. And keep listening for our special cream of wheat game right after the first act of today's story, Melilot. Once upon a time, in a land just east of the Big Dipper, three brothers had the misfortune to offend an evil sorceress, Madame Hatrod. We find them now waiting for the punishment they know she'll inflict. Well, my brothers, there's very little time left. Yes, Madame Hatrod will be here at any moment for our decision. And we might just as well face it. I, for one, am prepared to give her our answer now. And I, too. We are all agreed, then, that we cannot do what she has demanded of us. Join her in her evil witchcraft? Assist her in her plan to poison the streams and kill all the flowers and fruit of our lands with blight? Never. Look, brothers. The sky is darkening rapidly. Could that mean... Yes. That must mean Madame Hatrod is about to arrive. Listen. What is that sound I hear? It's a raven. Look. The sky is as black as the raven's wing. Then it's Hatrod, the witch. She's changed herself into a raven this time. Prepare yourselves, brothers. Perhaps we'll never be able to speak to each other again. Then until we meet again, farewell. <laughs> well, young men, I've come for my answer. Are you ready to give it to me? We're quite ready for you, Madam Hatrod. Well, don't keep me waiting. Tell me. Do as you will with us. We refuse absolutely to be a part of your evil witchcraft. So, that's your answer, is it? Yes, yes Madam Idiots! You've pronounced your own doom. From now on, you shall be changed into hideous half-men, half-frogs, hopping wherever you go. And this fine home shall be a hovel of mud, a dirty, filthy place, too ridiculous for men, not suitable for frogs. Prepare! For now, the enchantment is complete. <laughs> <laughs> my little frogmen, you'll have plenty of time to think over your mistake. <laughs> a mighty bad storm. I don't ever remember a worse one. Oh, brothers, how much longer must this enchantment last? I'm deadly sick of my hideous frog face. I'm sick of the man's brain, man's heart, and his long, wobbly legs. But at least, brothers, we have something to be grateful for. I marvel at your courage, Watt. In heaven's name, where is there any cause for gratitude, Watt? Why, brothers, we have men's minds. We can speak with each other in spite of our misshapen bodies. And now we know how the enchantment can be broken. But, Watt, even if we know, what chance have we? How can we hope to bring about all the things that must happen in order to break the enchantment? I've thought of that, too, but we can only hope it may happen. If we could only ask for help. 
that we dare not speak of the enchantment, nor can we give one word or hint as to what has to be done to change it. Who could that be? In such a storm, too. Come in, whoever you are. Come in. Excuse me, but Who are you? Let me out. Let me out. Don't be frightened, little lady. We shan't harm you. No, no, really we won't. No one will hurt you, dear little lady. Please believe us. But you have heads like frogs and... I mean, I never saw anyone. We realize how horrible we are, but please don't be afraid. Come over here by the fire. You're half frozen. Your clothes are soaked. Thank you. You're very kind. My name is Melilot. I live up above the second waterfall. Oh, yes, I know. You're the little girl who lives all alone in that, that tiny house on the mountainside. Yes, and I'm in such trouble. In I... trouble, little lady? Can we help you? Yes, isn't there? Isn't there something we can do? Oh, if you only would. You see, the rain beats so on the roof of my house that a part of it caved in. The water is pouring in and I have no other place to go. And everything will be ruined. I... I don't know what to do. Why, that simple little Melilot. Oh, by the way, this is Squad. How do you do? And uh, here is Watt. Hello. And I am Splash. I'm glad to know you, gentlemen. <laughs> A brave little girl to call us that. Oh, but you are. Even if you are so ugly. I beg your pardon. <laughs> so ugly. Never mind, we quite realize how hideous we look. And brothers, let us take hammers and nails along with some things to patch the roof. And if Miss Melilot will show us the way, we can go right up and fix her cottage for her. Oh, yes. It's a good thing you came to us, Miss Melilot. We're, we're pretty good carpenters. You're know. really very kind. I'm sorry to put you to so much trouble, but I do appreciate your friendliness. Here, now, put this jacket over you to protect you from the rain, Melilot. And away we go. Thank you. You're so neighborly and helpful. You make me forget how frightened and lonely I was. Splash and Squidge and Ward, I'm most grateful. <laughs> what a remarkable little lady. She remembered our names, brothers. All of them. They're marvelous. And such ridiculous names they are, too. Well, lead the way, little Melilot. We'll soon have you snug and comfortable. Excuse me, I left my rubbers on the porch. I'll get them. Brothers, can it be? Do you suppose that Careful, this is... Splash. Remember the warning. We must not ask. We must not explain. And everything must be done by the stranger's own free will. If all that should come about, then we may be freed. Well, Uncle, we're waiting for our cream of wheat game. Okay, Sybil. And today, our game is about summer sports. And when I name a certain kind of sports equipment, I want you, audience, to tell me what game it makes you think of. Now, here's the first. Club. <laughs> That's right, golf. And when you start the day by teeing off with cream of wheat, you'll find you won't want to putter around at the breakfast table. That's because every spoonful of smooth, delicious cream of wheat... Scores a clean-cut hole-in-one for flavor. All right, now, what about a racket? Tennis! You bet, tennis. 
And remember, when Mom serves enriched five-minute cream of wheat, that's the treat that nets you plenty of good nourishment. Iron for rich red blood, calcium and phosphorus for strong bones and teeth, plus vitamin B1 for big outdoor appetite. Okay, now here's our last sport question, pretenders. What great American game do you connect with the word bat? Baseball! Ah, that's it, baseball. And if you want to wind up and pitch into a dish that's good for home runs in the speed department, just step up to that plate of enriched five-minute cream of wheat. It's about the fastest dish in the whole league. Cooks to full digestibility, even for babies, in just five minutes of boiling. Yes, you play a better game, be tougher to beat, if you start each day with cream of wheat. Get enriched five-minute or regular cream of wheat from your grocer today. It's way up in flavor. It's way down in cup. It's plenty smooth. Thanks a lot, audience. And now back to today's story, Melalot. Melalot, lonely and frightened, seeks help from her nearest neighbors, the three brothers who were enchanted by Madame Hatrod and changed into frogmen. Our second act begins high up on the mountainside as the three brothers repair Melilot's cottage, which has been damaged in a storm. Well, there you are, Melilot. Oh, that's the last nail. And the roof is fixed. Uh, throw me down the hammer, Wad. Right, here you go. How about those extra boards, Splash? Uh, I have them. We have everything now. You gentlemen must be dead tired. You've worked hours and hours up there. Oh, not a bit of it. It's good exercise. Hey, look out, Splash. Yeah. I'm, I'm jumping down. Well, come ahead. Uh, yeah, that roof is snug as a bug now, Melilot. I can see that it is. It's as good as new. Come into the cottage, please. I have a nice warm fire, and you must sit down and rest yourself. Thank you. Sounds good. Oh, this is cozy in here. Yeah. And so clean. Oh, how nice to live once more like... Squudge? Oh, I... isn't it? Everything just shines like a new pin. Yes, yes, and how homey and livable you've made it, Melilot. The cottage is clean and comfortable, and most of the time I manage all right. But just now, I'm so ashamed. Uh-huh. So oh, no. terribly sorry, but... Well, Melilot, what's wrong? Please don't cry, little Melilot. Oh, what is it? What's troubling you? You, you worked so hard for me. And I know you're tired and, and hungry. And I haven't a single crust of bread to offer you. I'm so sorry. But look, little lady, there on the table. What? It's a full loaf of bread. And a pitcher filled with fresh milk. Why, where on earth did it come from? I wonder. Oh, but it doesn't matter. Now I can offer you something to eat. Look, I'll break the bread into three parts and divide the milk. Here are three glasses. There you are. Now please eat and enjoy yourselves. I'll get some fresh water from the spring. What? 
Splash? Yeah? Did you see that bread and milk appear out of nowhere? I certainly did. Hmm. What's more, she's hungry. And yet she divided the bread and milk and kept nothing for herself. Brothers, couldn't we give her some of this? No, Splash. No matter how much we'd like to share it with her, we, we must eat it all. You know why. Here we are. Nice cold water. I was just thinking, you mustn't try to get back home tonight. I think we'd better go. Of course you mustn't. I'm sure I can make all of you very comfortable. See? Here's a great big bed for the three of you. It looks very inviting. So clean and white and comfortable. But where will you sleep, Melilla? Don't worry about me. I have a little hammock out in the trees. It isn't raining now. I often sleep there under the stars. I love it. But, Melilla... Not another word. I won't listen to you. You just cuddle down here and sleep tight. You need a little mothering, you three. <laughs> Come along. You first, Flash. Yeah, but thank you, Mother Melilot. <laughs> Come along, Squad. All right. In you go. Thank you. <laughs> now, Ward. Right. There you are. And now you're all tucked in and cozy. Everybody comfortable? Yeah. You sleep tight. And I can't tell you how... What? They're sound asleep already. No wonder. How strange that I should think they were ugly at first. Poor little beasts or elves or whatever they are. Oh, dear Father in heaven, thank you for your loving care. Bless these three little people and show me how I may bring happiness into their poor little twisted lives. Amen. white cloth at my feet. Oh, it's beautiful. Whatever shall I do with it? Oh, I know. Splash, Squadge, and Mort. I'll make each one of them a little suit out of this. It will keep them beautifully warm, and maybe they'll be pleased with it. I'll get to work right now, and by morning I'll have all three suits finished and waiting when they wake up. Oh, how nice to be able to do something for my new little friends. <laughs> Flash, what? Uh, Wake up. Uh, quickly, uh, quickly. Uh, quickly. Uh, Look here. What is it? 
the yes. pink little suits. Three of them. Oh, how well, beautiful they are. They're made by hand. And so neatly, too. Yes, but feel the material. It's magic cloth. Uh-huh. Huh? Listen. The rhythm we heard the day the nymphs in the oak told us how the enchantment could be broken. And remember? She said suits of magic would be given us. Oh, certainly. Cloth. And here they are. The nymph's promise is being fulfilled step by step in exactly the order she said. Oh, dear, gentle little Melilot. Look, brothers. There through the window. There she is, sound asleep in her little hammock. And now, do you recall the nymph's next instruction? I do. Let's go out and waken her. Come along. Nymph of the oak, please help us to obey you. Brothers... I kiss the rag she wears that we may be clothed. What? Look, it is as I hoped. Her tattered dress is changed to richer silk, and jewels are twined in her golden hair. I kiss the wall of her little house that shelters so dear a soul. And lo, the tumble-down cabin becomes a rose-covered cottage. And I kiss the kind little hands that fashioned our magic suits. Brothers, our enchantment is broken. Oh, we're men once more. Melamot has broken the enchantment. And we are as we were the day Hatrod cursed us. I must have been dreaming. Good Good morning, Melamot. I didn't know we had company. Oh, dear little Melamot. No wonder you don't recognize us. We're your friends. What? Not Splash. And Squatch and (laughs) Ward. But how could this be? What has happened? Through the kindness of your own heart, Melilot. Because of your unselfish love for your fellow man. How wonderful and how glad I am. Oh, you look so fine. You're dressed so richly. You will be ashamed of your friend's tattered dress. Why, look. A new dress. It's of silk. And my hair. Jewels are twined in the braids. Why, I too am transformed. And your little house, Melilot. Have you noticed it? What a beautiful little cottage. And that is mine, really and truly mine. All yours, Melilot. Oh, brothers, listen. It's Hatron. It's the witch. She's discovered our enchantment is broken. Hurry, brothers, get the magic suit. What are you doing? What's going to happen? Quickly, brothers, the suit. Yeah. Each take one quickly. She's nearly upon us. Oh, hurry. Here she comes. Who has done this? Throw the suits over. Find her legs. She can't break through the fairy cloth. It's the only thing we could use to capture her. How can you treat her so? Who is she? Melilot, this is Madame Hatrod. It was she who enchanted us. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, poor little raven. I do not fear you. I love you. See, I stroke your wings. Get away! I kiss your shining black hair. Go away! Oh, what have I done? Where is she? What happened? A miracle, little Melilot. But this black lump of mud where the raven was standing. What have I done to her? You've saved all of us, Melilot. Don't you see what you've done? Hatred cannot live where there is love. And in declaring your love for her, you have forever destroyed the enemy. I don't understand. But if through any act of mine, you are safe from danger, then I'm very happy. Oh, look, brothers. Already the grass is turning green once more. And the trees are beginning to blossom. Yes. And there, the meadows are covered with flowers. Oh, and look here, friends. A magic table spread with lovely food. All through your unselfishness, Melilot. 
The fairy cloth has enveloped all the land in harmony and love. Well, whatever it is, I can only say I'm very grateful. And hungry. <laughs> Gentlemen, breakfast is served. Oh, good, <laughs> and now, before we tell you about next week's exciting story, tell me, audience, there are two words that rhyme with each other. And both of them describe enriched five-minute cream of wheat. One of them is nutritious. And the other, what is it, pretenders? Delicious! Ah, delicious is right. Yes, sir, it seems just about everybody goes for the smooth, delicious flavor of cream of wheat. Babies like it because it's so smooth and creamy, so completely digestible. Mom likes it because the penny a bowl price helps her save money. And the rest of the family, well, I'm sure they'll all agree with the last two lines of our song. For all the family's breakfast, you can't beat cream of wheat. The pretenders for today were... Gwen Davies. Melly Lott. Marilyn Erskine. Splash. Albert Alley. Wart. Kingsley Colton. Squudge. Jack Grimes. Madame Haytrod. Miriam Wolfe. The Fairies. Sybil Trent. Joan Laser. Judith Loxer. Betty Jane Tyler. Original music was composed and conducted by Maurice Brown. Now, these stories are dramatized and directed by Nyla Mack. And now, don't forget, if you're in or near New York and you'd like to come to a broadcast of Let's Pretend, drop a postcard to Cream of Wheat, CBS, New York City, for your free tickets. Suppose you found a magical toy. And you discovered it could give you anything you wished for. What's the very first thing you do? Something good or something harmful? Next Saturday, hear what one man did with it. Listen for the story of Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp. Speaking for Uncle Bill Adams, saying, Remember to eat cream of wheat, the great American family cereal. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Melalot, from the series Let's Pretend in the summer of 1947. The young woman playing the role of Melalot was Marilyn Erskine. She was 21 years old back then, and this very day, She's turning 96. Happy birthday, Ms. Erskine. Next Sunday, we'll kick off our bi-weekly series of programs for young people with a classic, Little Orphan Annie. Uh, an Ovaltine secret decoder ring may come in handy, and you can make one of your own by going to a link we have on our Facebook page. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, Kenny Pirog and Kellen Quigley are our audio engineers, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. The word gaslight has become a verb, and we're going to hear the story that made that happen a little later on tonight. It means to use lies and other means of psychological manipulation. Well, Matt Dillon only thought of gaslighting as a kind of illumination, but a whole town lies to him in a story called 
Brush at El Cater, the October 23, 1955 episode of the CBS series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Dodge had been real quiet all that week. No new herds had come up the trail, no buffalo hunters had drifted in off the prairie, no ox trains had arrived back from Santa Fe. The town just sat there like a plain girl at a party waiting to dance. But there was no dancing for Dodge. Not until Friday night there wasn't. I'd gone out to see a rancher friend that afternoon, and it was near midnight when I got back and rode up Front Street Toward a small crowd gathered opposite the long branch. I dismounted and walked over. At the center of the crowd, I found Doc and Chester crouched over a man sprawled in the dust. A man somebody had put a bullet in. It's Ben Williams, Mr. Dillon. Who did it, Chester? Nobody don't know. He rode off too fast. Anybody see it? Miss Kitty did. She's standing over there by the long branch now. He's dead, Matt. There wasn't much I could do for him. Nice fellow like Ben Williams. Never hurt nobody. He bled to death. Somewhere's inside. Was he conscious at all, Doc? He was till a few minutes ago. He say anything about uh, who shot him or why? You know somebody called El Cater? El Cater? Right. That's a town, Doc, not a person. Well, he kept trying to say something about it. All I could make out was the name. I didn't want him talking anyway. As I recall, Williams came from up around Elkater, didn't he, Chester? Well, he had a little ranch up there one time. Yeah. Ben Williams was a good man, man. Yeah, Doc. Chester. Yes, sir? I'm going over and talk to Kitty for a minute. Find me a fresh horse and saddle one of your own, huh? We're going to be riding out of here in a few minutes. Yes, sir. I'll hurry, Mr. Dillon. I hope you get him, Matt, whoever he is. Ben didn't deserve that, not being killed that way. He didn't deserve being killed at all, Kitty. Well, of course he didn't. How'd it happen? Well, Ben and I were having a drink inside, and we heard a couple of shots in the street here, and then somebody yelled for Ben to come out. Now, the man who killed him? It must have been. Ben didn't want to go, but I guess he figured he had to. I got by the window, and I could see Shippen out there on his horse. Shippen? Lou Shippen. That's what Ben said when he heard him yell. Yeah. All right, then what happened? Well, Ben walked out into the street, right up to him. He didn't even draw his gun, but Chippen must have been holding his in his lap. He suddenly shot Ben twice and then rode off as fast as he could. He murdered him, Matt. Can you tell me what this Chippen looked like, Kitty? Well, it's too dark. I don't even know what color his horse was. 
Yeah. Well, that's not going to make him very easy to find. But you find him, Matt. You find him. to go on was a name and a place. The place was El Cater, a little sunburnt town a hundred miles to the north. There was a saloon and a restaurant and a hotel and a stable and, miraculously, a telegraph office. But even so, El Cater didn't add up to much. It was still the crossroads of nothing. It was noon of the second day when we rode up the almost deserted main street, hot, saddle-weary, hungry. Where are we going to go first, Mr. Jones? Uh, we'll put our horses in the stable chest and then we'll take a look around. Huh? I've already seen all I want to of this place. Except maybe the inside of that restaurant. And I've been thinking, Chester. Maybe we'll stop there first? Uh, oh, no, no. About Lou Shippen. Oh. I finally remembered. Uh, I've seen his name. You have? Where? He's wanted over in Wichita. And I can't remember his description. Well, that's easy. All you got to do now is telegraph for it. Yeah. Ain't there nobody at this stable? Yeah, it doesn't look like it. Well, here comes somebody. Hello. You got room for a couple of horses, mister? I reckon. They've had a hard ride. You got any grain? I might scare some up. Yeah, good. Wait a minute. Yeah, what? Where'd you make this hard ride? Where are you from? Dodge. You're the marshal. Yeah, that's right. I thought marshals traveled alone. Well, sometimes they do. Well, I tell you, marshal, I got a little mixed up. I didn't sleep. You woke me, I plumb forgot. Forgot that you... what? I can't keep your horses here. There ain't no room. When I hear you just said you could. Table's all full, and I got no corral. I can see some empty stalls through the door there. Them spoke for. What is it, mister? Everything was fine until I told you I'm a marshal. I can't help it if the stable's full. These horses are going in there, mister, and you're going to feed them. Now, look, Now, mister. we're going to be back directly to see that they're all right, and believe me, that better be. All right, let's take them in, Chester. Like much of a hotel. Yeah, we don't have much choice. My gracious, I ain't sure where I'd rather sleep outdoors. Good morning, gentlemen. Hello. We're looking for a room. You mean two rooms? All right, two rooms. Of course, one room would be cheaper. And noisier. My friend here snores. Oh, now you always say that, but I never heard me snore. If I ever thought you were lying awake snoring, I'd ram a gun barrel down your throat. Uh, Now, gentlemen, please. (laughs) He don't mean it. (laughs) Do you, Mr. Dillon? Dillon? Marshal Dillon? Yeah, is there something wrong? No, no. 
You've been expecting me, is that right? I never heard of you before. Oh, that's one line. I tell me another one. Have you ever heard of Lou Shippen? Shippen? No, not around here. Never heard of him. Uh-huh. All right, let's see those rooms. I'm sorry, Marshal. I, I made a mistake. I forgot there are a lot of people coming in tonight. Our rooms are all taken. A lot of people coming in from where? No, it's true. I forgot all about it. Well, you just go on forgetting about it. Now throw me a couple of those keys before I lose my temper. We're here and we're going to stay. A frothy dog, Mr. Dillon. Like a what? You know, one of them slavering dogs that run around drooling and biting people and making them sick. Oh. I never been treated so bad before in all my life. That's Lou Shippen, Chester. He's here somewhere. My guess says he's told everybody in town they gotta get us to move on. Well, why would they care? He's a killer, Chester, and they know it. And they're afraid of him. Watson? Yeah, I want to send a telegram. You do? Where? Wichita. Here, I wrote it out at the hotel. Sheriff Wichita need full description of Lou Shippen. All right, what's the matter? Nothing, nothing. Send to me an Elkader at once, Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Look, mister, if It's you'd... Hinkle, Marshal, Mr. Hinkle. All right, Mr. Hinkle, are you going to send that, or am I going to have trouble with you, too? Trouble? I know Lou Shippen's got this town scared to death of him, but maybe it's about time I made some of you people scared of me. I might as well start with you. Now, Marshal, I, I don't want any trouble. I'll send your telegram as soon as the line's free. Good. Come on, Chester. Shouldn't we ought to have waited to make sure he's really going to send it, Mr. Dillon? He isn't going to send it, Chester, and there's no way I can make him. Why ain't it? I don't know Morse code. He could send anything he wanted. Hmm. Doggone it, Mr. Dillon, this town scares me. Any man here might be loose shipping, just waiting for an easy chance to shoot you in the back. Well, I got an idea how I can smoke him out, Chester. I'm going to have to tell a few lies to do it. And right now, let's get something to eat, huh? What's wrong this time, Mr. Dillon? No, what? The way they eat. My, that restaurant puts out the mustiest smelling beef stew I ever smelled. That was goat stew, Chester. Goat? I need a drink. Oh, here's the place to get it. If they'll serve us. They'll serve us, all right. Goat
bartender. Hello, Marshal Dillon. Now, word gets around fast, doesn't it? El Cater's a small town. Uh-huh. Small and scared. I don't know what you mean. You don't know Lou Shippen either, do you? Lou Shippen? No, no, I, I don't know him. Well, he might be one of the men sitting at that table behind me there. You better do your drinking someplace else. There isn't Marshall. any other place. Now fetch us a bottle of rye or I'll come back there and do it myself. I aim to have a drink. Well? All right. One of those men gave him a go-ahead sign, Chester. Did you see who it was? No, I didn't. I was watching the bartender. Oh, one of them's loose shipping. Yes, sir, but there's six of them to choose from. There comes that telegraph operator. Ah, uh, Mr. Henkel. Come over here. What do you want me for? I want to buy you a drink. Uh, bring a glass for Mr. Henkel, bartender. Here you are. I don't want a drink, Marshal. That's what you came in here for, wasn't it? I... I don't need a drink. Shepin. There's going to be a fight. You stay here, Mr. Hinkle. <laughs> all right, tell him it's all right to drink with me, Shepin. There are six of you men sitting there, and one of you is Lou Shepin. And by 10 o'clock tonight, I'm going to know which one. Isn't that right, Mr. Henkel? I didn't send that telegram. That's the truth. I didn't send it. You sent it. I stood there and watched you. But I didn't. You sent my telegram, and we'll have an answer by 10 o'clock tonight. Now, you're lying. That isn't true. I'd be wasting my time here if it wasn't. Now, you drink up. Drink up, Mr. Henkel. Okay, I'll be over about ten, Mr. Hinkle. I'm coming with you. What, are you afraid of shipping? All right, come on. But I'm not going to wait around your office with you. You've got to help me, Marshal. He'll kill me now. All those lies you told. Which one is he, Mr. Hinkle? I can't tell you. Why not? He's a devil with a gun. He could kill you and then where'd I be? All right, it doesn't matter. I'll find him later. But I didn't send any telegram. There ain't going to be an answer. Doesn't matter, Mr. Hinkle. What are you going to do? Now, for one thing, I'm going to see you're in your office tonight and that you stay there. That's all you have to worry about. I'll handle the rest. Be close to half past nine, ain't it? Yeah, just about. Can you see Mr. Hinkle? Yeah, he's in there. He's pretty fidgety, too. Well, I don't blame him. He knows Lou Shippen's gonna come after him, and he don't know we're laying out here waiting. No, he doesn't. Maybe Shippen will figure you was lying and stay away. He can't take that chance, Chester. He's gotta come. Yeah. We're sure stuck if he don't. We won't never find him. Shh. Quiet, Chester. 
people are coming. He's heading right for the telegraph office. Yeah. You stay here. Hold it, Shepard. Reckon you killed him? I don't know. Watch him. So you're Lou Shepard, huh? Smarted me, Marshal. You was lying about Hinkle sending that telegram. Yeah. I had no way of knowing for sure. Shepard, why did you kill Ben Williams? Never liked him. You killed him because you didn't like him? Good reason as any for killing a man. Oh, my goodness. Why did you stay here in Al-Qaeda? Why didn't you ride on? Here's my home. Nobody's going to push me out of it. <laughs> Except you, Marshal. You pushed me all the way out. Marshal. Where I never heard nothing like it, Mr. Dillon. He must have been plumb crazy. Yeah, he's probably killed a lot of people we don't even know about, Chester. And for no better reason. Yeah. And it's a good thing he's dead. Yeah, I guess so. I guess it is. some of the roughest citizens on the frontier were bred in Oklahoma territory. And uh, when two of them arrived in Dodge at the same time, well, it meant trouble. And that's our story for next week. So until then, good night. Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Monday, October 24th is U.N. Day, the 10th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations. The strength of the U.N. as a force for peace depends on your support. Remember, the U.N. works for you. Brush at Al-Qaeda, an adventure from Gunsmoke in the fall of 1955. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog and Kellen Quigley are our audio engineers. 
Our email address is bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. And for extras, check out our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast, and Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. Before this evening's over, we're going to hear a prison drama from 1965 in which the musical score has a big part. It's played by the harmonica virtuoso, who also excelled on guitar, banjo, as a composer, and as a whistler, Jean-Baptiste Toots Tielemans. The Belgian Mr. Tielemans, who passed away in 2016, was one of the greatest European jazz musicians of all time, and he was widely acknowledged as the preeminent jazz harmonica player. Toots Tielemans was born 100 years ago this week, on April 29, 1922. The extent to which Mr. Tielemans not only learned, but inhabited the American musical vernacular was almost unbelievable. His jazz waltz, Bluzette, has become a standard, and wait till you hear how he embodied the spirit of baseball. You won't have long to wait. In 1966, he created incidental music to accompany the famous interviews that Lawrence Ritter conducted with early 20th century ballplayers for his book and audio recording, The Glory of Their Times, one of the classics of baseball history and oral history. We'll hear the voices of Mr. Ritter, Chief Myers, one of Christy Mathewson's catchers, and Hall of Famer Sam Crawford, whose record for most career triples, 309, will never be broken, believe me. Published by the Macmillan Company in 1966 with music by Jean Toots Tielemans, it's the glory of their times. Rancheria down there, but uh, they they finally got pushed away to the hills. You weren't on a reservation or any sort. Oh, I, I lived. I, I was on when I was a young fellow. We lived on a reservation for a time. Went to school on the reservation. Yeah, when I was young, went to school there. In fact, I I went east and availed myself of a. College education at Dartmouth College, however, I didn't finish, which is one of the regrets of my life. But I got out of school, I started playing baseball professionally. I remember when I broke in with the, with the Harrisburg Club, they had a whole lot of old-timers on there. But went up to bat. Well, the First of all, it was kind of high and inside at the old head. <laughs> kind of tamed me down, you know. I figured it. I figured it'd be like that. It was tough. However, on the next pitch, I hit one into the Susquehanna River.
know, take for instance Matheson. Yeah, I don't think he ever walked a man that is from being wild, that is no control. I don't believe he ever walked a man in his life. The only time he ever walked on anybody was was expedience. Pitching too fine to him, you know, not letting him get a good ball. But there was never a time that he couldn't throw that ball over the plate. Who called the game, Matthewson or you? I call it. But if you don't feel right about it, why, well, he shakes his head. Did he often shake you off? No. Manny never shook me off. <laughs> Those fellas back there, they use their head in baseball a whole lot. Baseball's in the mind. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much baseball's in the mind of these modern, <laughs> these present-day players. I don't know. They're, they're always looking around for help. They don't know what to do. You think they were smarter in your day? I don't think there's any doubt about it. The banjo, guitar, and whistling of Jean Toots Tielemans accompanying the baseball reminiscences of Chief Myers and Wahoo Sam Crawford interviewed by Lawrence Ritter for The Glory of Their Times, a recording published in 1966. We'll hear the much more famous harmonica work of Toots Tielemans later tonight. The Belgian jazz master would have turned 100 this coming Friday. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Last week, we heard the first part of the very first two-part case from Dragnet. The length really dramatizes the tedium and tension of much police work. Here's the conclusion of that story, The Big Man, Part 2, from January 19, 1950, NBC and Dragnet. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to Narcotics Bureau. For seven months, you've been working with federal and state agents in breaking a narcotics ring. You've apprehended the small fry. Next in the line, the big man. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment... Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, July 9th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of Narcotics Bureau. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. 
was on the way into work, and it was 3.58 p.m. when I got to room 24, Narcotics Bureau. Hi, Joe. Feel better? Oh, not quite as tired, Ben. That Costello thing was a long haul. Narcotics Romero. Okay, Bigham. I'll tell him. Meeting's in five minutes. Chief Brown's office. Okay, I want to pick up my stuff from the captain first. Hi, Skipper. Come on in. You look a little better, Friday. Get some rest? Yeah, and a couple of good meals. That's the trouble with the Flats gang. They never know where to eat. Sit down, Joe. I want to talk to you. We got a couple of minutes before the meeting. You'll probably be getting this all up and down the line from here in. Just want to let you know that we think you and all the men in the operation did a fine job. My part wasn't much. You did more than I did. Oh, we all worked, but you had the dirty end of it. Good job. Here's your equipment. You'll need it now. Oh, yeah, thanks. Badge, your ID card, your gun. Six shells, that's all of it, huh? Mm-hmm. That's it, thank you. You're back at it. Yep. Here's one for you. Look at this. What's that you got? Mug shot of a girl picked up in a narcotics raid last night. Oh, pretty girl. Long, blonde hair. Beautiful eye. She looks young. High school girl? She was when that picture was taken, 1947. She was 16. Here, look at this one. Yeah, same girl. Yeah. That's the way she looked at 11.30 last night when we picked her up. She looks 50. 19 years old. Three years on heroin. She might as well be dead. She is. 8 o'clock this morning. Let's go. It's time for the meeting. You just looked at the best reason I know of for getting Belmont. she get her stuff from Belmont? Costello was pushing to her. He got his stuff from Belmont, the old one. Well, let's go. All right, William. Anybody brief you on the Costello interview, Joe? No, no, not yet. Chief Brown will fill you in. Here we are. Chief? Gentlemen, come on in. Men all know each other. Oh, yeah. Hiya, Craig. Uh, Captain White, I think you and your men know Policewoman Caswell. Yes, sir. How are you, Florence? Hello. I'm Ms. Caswell, Inspector Virgil Beckner, State Narcotics. How do you do? Oh, yeah. Bill Craig, agent in charge, Federal Narcotics. Hello. How do you do? Before we get into Belmont procedure, let's see how we stand on the Costello case. Uh, White, do you want to fill everybody in on the information we got from Ralph Costello? Yes, sir. Uh, after his arrest Monday night, we interrogated Costello for about four hours. We confronted him with the package he sold to Friday here. How the stuff test? Crime lab ran it through, about a third of an ounce of heroin, fair quality Mexican stuff. The man we picked up with Costello, Tony Morris, was questioned as well. He corroborated Costello's story. What'd you get from him? Well, he told us he had a great deal of information on the big man in the operation, Belmont. That he wouldn't tell us a thing unless we made a deal with him. What kind of a deal? He wanted everything. But we finally agreed that the only thing we might possibly work out was his prison term. Mm-hmm. We called in the U.S. District Attorney. We talked another four hours. How'd it work out? District Attorney told Costello the only thing he'd do for him was to have his prison terms run concurrently rather than consecutively. Not much to pay for what we got. Costello gave us enough to enable us to start moving on Belmont right away. We've had his MO confirmed. We've got a list of most of his pushers. Now we can get to him. Any definite plan, Chief? No, White and I have been talking over here with... Craig and Beck, we worked out what we think might be a pretty good plan. Uh, Craig, do you want to lay out how your men are going to handle it from the federal end? We'll work from out of town to the center here. We'll check his contacts across the state lines. We've already traced his connections to the east, New York syndicate. We'll keep working that end. 
Beck, uh, how about your state narcotics man? We work inside the state line here. We've already checked out part of his operations. We've <clears> located <throat> sources in San Francisco, Bakersfield, Fresno, as far south as San Diego, Lower California. We'll draw all those ends up tight. Keep moving. You fellows will both give us a hand if we need assistance. You bet. That's right. Fine. Uh, White, what are we going to do locally? Oh, it's going to be a case of taking what we know and finding out what we don't know, putting the two together. Seems to me to be a case of watching the man at all times. Belmont shouldn't be able to blow his nose without one of our men knowing it. It's going to be a tremendous undertaking. You all know the tough job it is shadowing narcotics, men. They're fidgety, hypersensitive. They recognize anything out of the ordinary at once. For that reason, it can't be a one-man operation. Everybody's got to work. Our undercover won't work this time. They're no doubt alerted. So we'll work it from another angle. When do we start? We've already started. Belmont lives in Manhattan Beach. His house is under surveillance. Has been since yesterday. Well, I can impress upon all of you the importance of not letting Belmont out of your sight for an instant. A narcotics buy could be made in 30 seconds. If we're not there at the instant, we lose him. Do we have anything at all as to when he might be ready to deal again? Nothing. Nobody seems to know Belmont's exact operating time. Could be any time. And in order to prosecute him, we've got to be there when the narcotics are in his possession or under his control. So we start to live with him and stay as close as we can without being tabbed until there's a buy. That's it. Captain White has all the assignments for our local men. Okay. We'll watch him. We'll stay close to him. If he makes a move, be there. The meeting lasted four hours. During that four hours, a plan was formulated which we hoped would end in the successful apprehension of the number one man in Pacific Coast narcotics traffic, Arthur Z. Belmont. How do you watch a man, his every move, for 24 hours, day in, day out, without his knowing it? How do you watch a man whose very existence depends upon not being watched, who is expertly schooled in every trick and device of police surveillance, whose method of operation will change with the slightest disturbance of his daily routine, and if that M.O. changes, you've lost him. Thursday, July 10th, in the small Los Angeles suburb of Manhattan Beach, population 10,172, three very ordinary events took place. A public nurse began a house-to-house survey. She asked the simple question, have you ever been vaccinated for smallpox? She started canvassing 27 blocks from the home of Belmont. Policewoman Florence Caswell. Two Japanese gardeners new to the city of Manhattan Beach began soliciting work. They started asking for jobs 38 blocks from the home of Belmont. Sergeant Ten Fujikuni and Patrolman John Kagawa. A team of surveyors driving a station wagon marked with the seal of Los Angeles County began taking linear measurements for the proposed enlargement of storm drains in the area. They started 14 blocks from the home of Belmont. Lieutenant John Bigham, Central Narcotics, Sergeant Ben Romero, and myself. Okay, Ben, bring in the rod. Let's knock off for lunch. What do you want to eat, John? In the wagon. Better take the transfer with us. Kids might pick it up. Okay. I got it. I can't keep the sand out of my shoes. Might as well get used to it. We're a long ways from home. Nine years on the job is the first time I ever brought my lunch in a paper sack. Who knows, Joe? This might change your whole way of living. You bet. Want to sit in the front? No, I'm getting back. Fellas, have a look at the local paper? No, why? Manhattan Beach Sentinel, down the bottom of page one in the box. Read it. Yeah, let me see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. What is it, Joe? Read it out loud. Well, it says preliminary work on storm drains started. Surveyors. Well, it goes on to say that surveyors have started taking measurements for the new drains. Mm-hmm. Captain White's idea had the story planted, even got a release from the planning commission. It won't hurt us a bit. Well, you said lunchtime. We've got enough here for the whole department. Four hard-boiled eggs. See what kind of sandwiches I drew. 
deviled egg. Look here. She even put them on egg bread. I hate eggs. Ooh, looks like the captain driving up the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's him. Driving a city car. Chief engineer. How's it going, Biggin? Fine. Slow. How'd your lunch? What do you got? Deviled egg sandwiches. Got plenty. Can't stand them. How about a ham and cheese? Yeah. Thanks. There you go. Hmm. How's everybody else doing? Hmm. Very slow. Takes time. We've got to keep taking our time. If we tip it before we got close enough, Belmont's on his way. Mm-hmm. How long are we going to have to keep our distance? Not much longer. We can't take the chance of starting everybody out right on top of Belmont. Uh-huh. It might look funny to him. Anybody else would be okay. The average person, your operations might look normal, but we can't afford to try to get it by Belmont that way. Mm. With a hop cutter, you never know. It's not so much that we don't know, we just can't take any kind of a chance. Mm. That's what I mean. He might have started right on Belmont's front lawn, and he's never got wise. But we wouldn't want to risk it. Belmont been out of his house today? On the go quite a bit. Left his house at 9.13 a.m., went down to the ShopRite market, bought a half pound of bacon... Two dozen eggs, loaf of bread, whole wheat. Sergeant Hodges waited on him. He's clerking in the grocery department. Oh, yeah. Then he drove over to his neighborhood gas station, got a full tank of ethyl and two quarts of oil, heavy weight, drove home, got back at 9.42. Are you still there? Yeah. About time you guys were back at it, huh? Right. Okay, Ben. You want to grab some of the gear? Yeah. I guess. Right, let's go. Hey, Joe. Hmm? Give me a leftover bread crust, will you? I'll give them to Seagull. Yeah, sure. Here you go. Right. Well, foot by foot, we're getting closer to Belmont. Hope nobody tips it. Nobody should, unless you don't trust those gulls. We surveyed the city of Manhattan Beach for five weeks. Policewoman Caswell, posing as a nurse, continued canvassing. Everybody concerned with the job of standing watch over Arthur Z. Belmont carried out their routine day by day. Daily reports came in from everyone in the operation. These reports would be sifted at Central Narcotics and progress reports compiled for the use of those in the field on the Belmont case. All police cars, as well as city cars, such as we were employing, were equipped with three-way radio communication. All personnel were in constant contact with one another. Wednesday, August 12th, it was the decision of Captain Lynn White that the idea of our posing as city surveyors had been exhausted. Further use of this could possibly arouse suspicion. Belmont lived at 1227 Ocean Avenue. Two days before we were called off the surveying job, the city leased the private residence at 1216 Ocean Avenue. A van load of furniture was moved in. Drapes and curtains were hung. Regular deliveries of daily newspapers and milk were made to the house. To all outward appearances, the house was occupied by an average family. Actually, it provided another blind from which we could continue to observe Belmont. Shortwave radio equipment was installed in an upstairs room. Ben and I were assigned the night watch. Another car just stopped in front of Belmont's house. How many does that make? Three cars. Just a minute. Yeah. A couple of guys getting out. Going up the front door. Mm. Where? Let me see, huh? Take a look. Watch Kurt. Uh-huh. Yeah. Belmont answered the door. He's letting him in. Something's doing. What do you think? I don't know. You called Captain White, didn't you? Oh, an hour ago. Just after the first car pulled up. She'll park in the alley and come up the back way. Yeah, I better check with everybody again. This portable seemed to warm up slower than our car radio. About the same. Ah, here we go. 
Unit 140K to Unit 145K. 145K, go ahead. Just checking. Your location the same? That's right. Ocean and Cliver. We got three cars to cover now. Stand by. Roger. Unit 140K to 143K. 143K, we got it. Standing by. Location still good? Same. Be talking to you. Stand by. 140K to 149K. 149K. Go ahead. Stay put. We got three cars now. Yeah, we heard. Still the same spot. Stand by. Roger. Captain just pulled into the alley, Joe. Don't worry. Good. Belmont's porch light just went out. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Three guys came in the first car. Two in the second. Two in the third. Is that right? Yeah. Seven all told. Eight counting Belmont. Maybe he's running for office. Joe, then, any changes since you called me? Another car. Mm-hmm. Anybody you know? I'm too dark to see their faces. Mm-hmm. Dodge coupe, gray, black packet sedan, green cherry. Well, that might be for me. I told the office they could reach me here. White. Yeah, Bigham. You must be wrong. You sure he's not lying? All right, thanks. Yeah. You sure Belmont hasn't left his house since you came on duty? Couldn't possibly. Not without somebody in the details partner. He got out somehow. He made a buy. Captain White called the office and talked to Benny Arredondo, our narcotics undercover man. He confirmed the fact that somehow Belmont had a meet and successfully completed a narcotics transaction. None of us could figure how, and we didn't know when the meet took place. Arredondo told us that the buy had been made sometime in the past ten hours. The arresting officers had recovered a portion of the narcotics, two bindles of heroin. They were found in the possession of one of Belmont's runners, Archie Scott. I can't figure it. What do we do now, Skipper? Sit tight and watch those three cars in front of Belmont's house over there. Maybe he didn't have to leave the house to make a buy. That's the way I got it, Peg. Those cars down there, those are the first visitors he's had in the past 24 hours? As far as anybody knows, we watched it close. Sometimes it's like that. Uh-huh. Well, it looks like somebody's coming out over there. Two guys. How many in there? Eight, counting Belmont. All right, Friday. Get to the cars. Yeah. They start to move out yet? No. Five, six, seven. That's all of them. They're heading for the car. Yeah. Looks like a three-way switch. We'll see when they start to move out. Attention all units and special details. Stand by. Here's the license numbers, Joe. Oh, good. I need those things. Green Chevy's headed south. Black Packard's going north. So's a Dodge Coupe. Uh-huh. Dodge turn left at the corner. It's headed east now. Got it. 140K to all units in special detail. Unit 149K. 149K, go ahead. 1946 Green Chevrolet Sedan, license 61 William 852, headed south on Ocean. Roger. Unit 145K. 145K, go ahead. 1947 Gray Dodge Coupe, license 1X-Ray 1898, headed east on Clipper Street. Roger. 143K, come in. 143K, yep. 1939 Black Packard Sedan, license 6 Mary, 6778, headed north on Ocean. Roger, got him spotted. Could be a dry run. He couldn't afford to chance it either way. Nothing to do now but wait it out. That's right, and pray for rain. It was eight minutes past 8 p.m. We sat back and waited for the reports to come in from the cars. At 8.25 p.m., 17 minutes after the alert was broadcast, Unit 149K reported in on the gray Chevrolet sedan. The car and its occupants were thoroughly searched. 
No trace of narcotics was found. 8.42 p.m., 34 minutes after the alert. Unit 143K to 140K. 143K, go ahead. On that 1939 package sedan, license 6, Mary 6778. Check them down. Nothing. They're clean. 8.50 p.m., 42 minutes after the alert, the report on the third and final car came in, the 1947 gray Dodge Coupe. That's it. Not a trace of narcotics in any of those three cars. Belmont beat us. Tough luck. It's going to be tougher. Now he knows we're after him. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. The three car switch. Three cars arrive at a given point at different times. The meet takes place. The drivers of the various cars leave the given point at the same time. Each drives away from the point in a different direction, making it three times as difficult to follow them. The practice was not new to the Narcotics Bureau or the dealers in narcotics. It usually includes the dry run in which the actual mechanics of the narcotics are carried out, but neither the merchandise nor the money is on hand. This practice forces the narcotics officer into pure guesswork. If the officer doesn't follow up, the buy could be successful. If he chooses to follow up, he takes the chance of exposing himself and tipping his hand on a rehearsal. In the case of this particular car switch, we lost. But taken in the car roundup were seven of Belmont's trusted runners. Six of these men refused to talk, but the seventh, Clifford Bissell, gave us a lead to one of Arthur Belmont's most trusted friends. His name was Floyd Ketchell. He and his wife lived at 357 Evergreen Drive, Linwood. It's a nice house. Yeah. Yes? Uh, police officers, we'd like to ask you a few questions. What about? Well, as you probably know, there's been a series of burglaries here in your neighborhood. No, I didn't know. Oh, yes, quite a few. Would you mind if we came in and talked to you about it? I don't know anything about any robberies around here. Everything's okay. This is just a routine check, Mr. Ketchell. Everybody else in the neighborhood's cooperating. Only take just a minute. All right, you can come in, but I have to leave in about 15 minutes. Thank you. You have a nice place here, Mr. Ketchell. Yes. Now, what was it you wanted me to help you with? You know a man by the name of Clifford Bissell? No. How about Arthur Z. Belmont? Who? Arthur Z. Belmont. Bissell says you and Belmont are good friends. I don't understand this. I thought you wanted to ask me about some robberies. I wonder if you'd mind rolling up your left sleeve. I'd like to look at your arm. What for? You're a user, aren't you? No, I'm not. Then you know what we're talking about, don't you? No, I don't. Do you have any narcotics here in the house? Certainly not. You mind if we look around? Why do you want to search the house? Why won't you show us your left arm? Floyd Ketchell would admit nothing, but he allowed us to search his home and grounds. An extra detail of men was called out to aid us in the search. We covered every foot of the acre of ground. This took two days. We found nothing. On the third day, under the flooring of an upper bedroom of the Ketchell home, we found Ketchell's plant. He was using heroin. You want me to call Belmont, is that the idea? That's right. We want you to set up a meet with him. I'm not going to rat on Art. He's a friend of mine. Well, suit yourself. We found your plant there. We've got you. You'll be the fall guy. You mean I take all the heat? Why not? The cell put the finger on you. we got to have somebody. Why pick on me? We just told you. We found the stuff here. The cell fingered you. You're it. All you have to do is make a phone call. You won't have a clean slate, but it's going to sound a lot better in court. All right. It makes sense. You know what to tell him. We've already been over all that. Call him now. Friday, listen in on the extension. If Ketchell changes his mind in the middle of the conversation, I'll see that he hangs up. Yeah. 
Hi, Art. Floyd Ketchell. Hi, Kit. Fine. How's Edna? She's fine, Art. Say, I got a friend on his way to Honolulu. Uh-huh. He wants to take a little package along. Gotta have it. You know him? Is he okay? Yeah. Old friend. You sure? Yeah. Have to be pretty careful. Got hit Wednesday night down the beach. Yeah? Who'd they get? The cell and the six guys from New York. Get off easy. It's a dry run. I didn't know that. Nothing in the papers. It isn't hit yet. It will. How much do your friend need? Gonna be in the islands for quite a while, so there's a couple ounces should do it. You got the money now? He's good. Can you swing it tonight? Boat leaves from San Francisco day after tomorrow. Hasn't got much time, has he? Okay, you want to pick it up? Yeah. Uh, all right, if I bring him along, I want you to meet him. Good customer. If you're sure about him, yeah. 8.30 at the store. We'll be there, Art. 1100 cash. Yeah. Better be okay, kid. He is. Better be. I had one dry run this week. I can have another. 3.22 p.m. We took Mr. and Mrs. Floyd Ketchell back to Central Division where they were booked on suspicion of violation of the State Narcotics Act. 4 p.m. We met in the office of Chief of Detectives Thad Brown. You need $1,100, is that right? Yeah, that's right. How much was in the Secret Service fund? $223. Rotten for this month's all gone. Well, where'd you get the rest of it? You haven't got it all yet. Romero's the banker. How you got it figured, Ben? Well, let's see. I've got it all written down here. I'm... First off, we got $223 cash. And these fellows all gave us their personal checks. Jack Donahoe and Robert gave us $200. Johnny Begum put up $100. And Captain White's in for $150. Joe pinned in $35. Bucks and $22's all I could swing. That's, uh, $720. You need $380, right? Yeah, that's the way I got to figure. Okay, I think I can make up the rest. How about Wynn's Cadillac? He loaned it to you? He's out getting it washed. It's 41 isn't it? Yeah, sedan. A little old, but it looks good when it's wise. Flashy. Now, oh, that's what you need. You gonna make the buy away? Yeah. Ketchell will be with me. Okay. So I'll hear $1,100. Yeah, we've only got one hitch. It's 5 o'clock and the banks are closed. Yeah? Not much time to run around getting checks cashed. It was 5 p.m. We had three hours to cash $720 in personal checks. We split up and covered every possible place in the city where we were known and where we knew they would cash them. By 7.45 p.m., we had the 1100 in cash. The serial number on each bill was listed and the money turned over to Captain White. The scene of the meet was a hardware store on East 9th Street, which Belmont used as a front. Belmont's hardware was located in a small neighborhood shopping district. On Friday nights, the stores remained open until 9 p.m. Promptly at 8.30, Captain White and Floyd Ketchell pulled up in front of the store and went in. Ben and I waited in our car a half a block down the street. It was 8.35. There they are. They're coming out. Must have made to buy. Starting the car. Here they come. Watch for the skipper's signal, huh? Yeah. There it is. Let's go. Okay, pull over here. Come on. There's a clerk back there. You see Belmont? No. I help you? Uh, Mr. Belmont around? No, sir. He just stepped out. You sure? Yes, sir. He went out the back door not a minute ago. Bigham and Cassidy are out there, aren't they? <clears throat> yeah, he won't go for it. Oh, there's Mr. Belmont. Mr. Belmont, these gentlemen want to see you. Running up the stairs to Mezzanine. Come on. All right, Belmont. Wait a minute. What's that barrel? Watch it. Look out! Pushing that barrel down the stairs. Come on. There he is. 
trying to reach that skyline. Belmont, get down. You'll never make it. You're slipping, Joe. Belmont! Come on. You didn't do that showcase any good. He's through. Piece of that glass. Right through him. Yeah. It's a rough way to go, and Yeah. At least narcotics didn't kill him. Didn't it? The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On December 10th, 1948, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Twelve members of Arthur Z. Belmont's narcotics gang were finally rounded up by federal, state, and local authorities. All twelve were tried and convicted of violating the Harrison Act and the State Narcotics Act. They received sentences as prescribed by law and are now serving their terms in state and federal penitentiaries. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet from Los Angeles. Be sure to hear Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman in Halls of Ivy tomorrow on NBC. The conclusion of the two-part case called The Big Man from Dragnet in the winter of 1950 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Kellen Quigley are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. You don't hear the word anxiety a lot in old-time radio, but it became a kind of byword for the 1950s. Beneath the surface of material prosperity, much was made back then of the threat of nuclear war, the threat of communism, the angst of young people, and much more. The theme runs alongside the narrative of Edmund G. Love's book, Subways Are for Sleeping. As much as we hear about homelessness these days, I think you'll find Mr. Love's take on the subject different from anything else. It's a kind of handbook, and indeed it was a short story in Harper's Magazine before Mr. Love expanded it into a book in 1958. Later, it was turned into a Broadway musical. But before all of that, the venerable CBS Radio Workshop had adapted it for radio. This was the distinguished series that used the slogan of which our beloved Ed Walker was so fond, the theater of the mind. It brings to life the New York City of 70 years ago, when there wasn't much air conditioning, but there were very many automats, those coin-operated self-serve restaurants. You'll hear references to both in Subways Are for Sleeping, the August 3, 1956 installment of the CBS Radio Workshop. From Hollywood, the CBS Radio Workshop.
Desk clerk. General American 411? Right away. Good afternoon, Arthur. Oh, hello, Mr. Shelby. Any messages for me? Well, not since I came on, sir. May I have my key, please? I'm sorry, Mr. Shelby, but the manager says not to give you your key until your bill's paid. Oh? It's 113 bucks and some odd cents. I know. You want I should call him so you can talk to him about it? No. Never mind. Sorry, Mr. Shelby. It's not your fault, Arthur. I'll stop back in a couple of days to see if there's any mail. Yes, sir. Yes, please. I'm sorry, Mrs. Marshall. $14.60, 65, 66 cents. Well, I can eat for a week or so. And plenty of people sleep in the subway. CBS Radio presents the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, subways are for sleeping, based upon the Harper's Magazine article by Edmund G. Love, a true story of one man's strange adjustment to mid-century materialism in the largest city in the world. Have you ever gotten fed up with rent, taxes, and bills, and the clatter of telephones? With all the demands, large and small, that our complicated civilization makes upon us. Henry Shelby finally did. When they locked him out of his hotel room, he stayed out. For the past three years, he has, by choice, been homeless and without a steady job. Yet, Henry Shelby is no bum. He is as well-dressed and as smoothly shaven as the next man you'll meet. He's not stupid. He holds a master's degree in economics and is a former school teacher. He has never visited a soup kitchen or stood in a bread line or asked for a night's lodging at a Bowery mission. Still, he has learned for himself how to maintain his sanity and peace of mind in a confused and confusing society which takes from a man more than it gives. Henry Shelby has reversed the process. And this is how he does it. I'm getting along all right. I'm perfectly happy. I'm just waiting to see how things come out. In the meantime, I see to it that I always have at least 15 cents, so I'm sure of a place to sleep. And the truest statement I ever heard is that no one will ever starve to death in the United States. Eighty-six in the bean soup... All out of Yankee bean, Mac. Cream of tomatoes, okay. Tomato or bowl? Well, as I live and hope to, shall be. Hello, Ernie. So you've got the counterman wanted sign in the window. Yeah. Guy was here two weeks. Today never shows. Want to go to work right now? Sure. Well, go on back and grab a hat and jacket. I ain't even checked cash from breakfast yet. Okay, fine. Want a cup of coffee or something first? Go right ahead. No, I'm fine. Here's your soup, Mac. Crackers or bread? Crackers. Hey, ain't you the regular counterman? Me? I'm supposed to manage a joint. You give any bum comes along a job? Shelby ain't no bum, Mac. He's a college graduate. Huh. Michigan or someplace like that. Used to be a school teacher, too. So? Well, he shows up every three, four months, works a couple of days for five bucks a day in his meals, and then he's gone. When he tells me he ain't coming back. So that makes him he ain't a bum. Well, it does in my book. He can do anything around the joint. Do it plenty good, too. How's the soup? All right. Anything else? Uh, I don't know yet. 
This jacket isn't exactly the best fit in the world. <laughs> you look great, Shelby. I'll bet. Now, uh, here's your checks and the punch. Everything's the same as last time he was here. Uh, not quite. Corned beef and beans are up a nickel. <laughs> hey, they are at that. I forgot. Well, she's all yours. I'll uh, check the register. Anything else for you, sir? Pie? Coffee? Well, I might have some pie at that. Um, apple. Right. Uh, with cheese, I guess. Right. Empty the mousetrap on this pie. Hey, uh, look, Shelby, I was thinking I, uh, I got no night chef for the moment either. Why don't you stick around for a couple of weeks and help me out? Well... Eight-hour shift, five days, 55 bucks, and all the food you can steal. Here you are, sir. Well, I'll think about it, Ernie. I actually didn't have to think about it. When I went in, I knew I'd only stay for a few days. I have five or six places like that. They're my social security. I use them when my cash is way down and my suit needs dry cleaning. And when I'm ready for a good, long sleep, lying down. So, Henry Shelby works just long enough to get a little money ahead. Then he picks up his clean laundry and checks in at a respectable but inexpensive hotel. Here's the 450 in advance. I'm afraid I don't have any luggage. And will you send the valet up to my room in a few minutes, please? Once his suit is on its way to the cleaners, Shelby spends the next 24 hours in bed or under the shower. He has taken as many as 15 showers on one of these occasions and slept for as long as 22 hours. It's an extravagance, of course. Cost me seven or eight dollars, and that's as much as I usually spend in a whole week. But I certainly do feel fine when I check out. And thus refreshed, Henry Shelby sets out again to roam the streets of New York. First stop, to leave his laundry somewhere in the Grand Central area. He owns two of everything except for his one suit, and he'll pick up this bundle in a few days. Bathe and change in a booth at Grand Central Terminal and drop the soiled clothing off at another laundry in the vicinity. I carry a safety razor in my pocket and I shave at least every 36 hours. It costs 25 cents for a booth, but I can freshen up generally at the same time. The bums who look like bums are mainly the ones the cops bother. Naturally, I don't consider myself a bum, so I make it a point not to look or feel like one. Twenty-four hours can be a long time, particularly when all you have to look forward to is twenty-four more of the same. But Henry Shelby fills them with endless variations of the same pattern, and he walks between whatever geographical points are involved. Breakfast time may find him at a juice bar on 3rd Avenue. Large tomato juice, please. Come on there, friend. Fill it up. Your sign says 12 full ounces for a dime. Coffee at the automat on 6th. Another cup later in the gloomy fluorescent glare of a cafeteria in the garment district. I load in all the cream and sugar the mug will hold. They're calories. Free calories. Free calories. 
Lunch in the Gramercy Park neighborhood today. Yesterday, it may have been at Broadway and 116, but at the same kind of a white tile stand and very likely the same lunch. A frankfurter, I guess, and a large glass of milk. Two or three more cups of calories during the afternoon, and finally, the one substantial meal of the day. The Vienna loaf dinner looks all right. Vienna loaf coming up. Uh, not that slice. The next one with the hard-boiled egg in it. Yes, that one. Fried or boiled potatoes, corn or stewed tomatoes. Uh, no potatoes. Plenty of starch in the bread. Uh, how about a good helping of cream spinach instead? Mac, if you got an order a la carte, why don't you go to the Waldorf for the 21? <laughs> well, I'll take you to either one of them someday as my guest. Yeah, I'll hold my breath. Okay, spinach. Now, corn or stewed tomatoes? Stewed tomatoes. What's that you're putting on? Gelatin salad comes with it. No, thanks. Let's trade for a dab of those cooked carrots, okay? Now, look, They're Frank. probably cheaper than the salad. You're saving money for the management. That's what I'm interested in. Okay, but don't ask me for no Charlotte Russe. There you are, Mac. Very good. Very well-balanced dinner. Yeah, not bad for 42 cents. Not bad at all. I may continue to give you my patronage when I'm in the neighborhood. Thus, the inner man is stoked, though perhaps not aesthetically satisfied, and always a walk between each refueling stop. The aesthetic hunger is assuaged along the way. There is the ever-changing kaleidoscope of Manhattan store windows, displaying their shiny wonders, their sturdy commonplaces, their exotic luxuries, their mundane necessities. There is a record of mankind's daily activities the world over in a newspaper plucked from a trash basket, and there are benches and parks and public buildings where Henry Shelby may rest while he reads. There are pillared halls where paintings and sculpture may be viewed. Henry Shelby is a regular visitor to New York's many art galleries, but his favorite is the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, if you'll follow me, we will view the museum's unrivaled collection of the works of Edward Degas. Edgar Degas. Edgar Hilaire Germain Degas. Oh? Oh, I'm sorry, madam. Oh, don't apologize, young man. That's very interesting. Degas worked chiefly in oil, although his renderings in pastel have achieved some fame. He wasn't a bad sculptor, either. Is that so? The oil to the immediate right and above is at the milliner's. And to the right of that and below is dancers practicing at the bar. Only the first now one is a pastel, not an oil. This guide is new, I'd imagine. Uh, let's stay behind, Myrtle. This gentleman knows more about it than the guide does. Uh, you don't mind, do you, mister? No, not at all. They sort of hurry you through on the guided tours. Uh, now, uh, what about the one that's a pastel instead of an oil? Well, Degas' pastels, particularly his later ones, do have a deep, rich, almost oil-like texture. He applied the color in successive layers, fixing each tone or shade separately and using open lines to allow each undercoat to show through. Oh, well, I, I don't quite understand, but I, I see what you mean. Uh, are you an artist? No, although I'm planning to do some painting. Uh, sometime. Oh, well, my daughter's very artistic, back in Chillicothe. Um, what's this one, that lady sitting with a big bouquet? That's an oil. It's called Woman with Chrysanthemums. Well, <laughs> that's a good name for it, isn't it? Yes, isn't it? <laughs> Hey, if you aren't an artist, how do you know all these things? Oh, I spend a lot of time here, and I read a great deal. Oh, you certainly must. Goodness, you're a regular Billy Pearson. I beg your pardon? You know, the jockey on television. Oh, yes. I've read about him. Didn't he win $64,000 and then go on and tie with a fellow named Price for another 64 or something? 
Yeah, that's the one. Did you ever watch those programs? No, I can't say that I do. I'm afraid I don't have a television set. Yes, there's plenty of free culture and free entertainment to be found in New York City, even without a television set or a radio in your home, even without a home. One of the most spectacular free entertainments in Manhattan is presented by the fire department. Henry Shelby always follows a fire engine. He generally gets to the fire, too. For the radius in which each engine company operates is small enough to permit even a pedestrian to arrive shortly after the equipment. Oh, this one is nothing. It's just a chemical job. They might as well have left the ladder truck back at the station. Now, you should have been at Amsterdam on 133rd the other day. I happen to be in the neighborhood at the time. There are the inevitable New York traffic accidents. Shelby has a nose for these and for straight fights, and he never leaves the scene until the last policeman has closed his notebook. And the parks and public squares are places where a man with a message may speak it forth within certain limits of subject matter. And that is to continue to eat the flesh of the animal. What mother nature intended us to nourish ourselves with grows in the ground. Henry Shelby stops to listen to every street corner orator he runs across, weighing bravely the ideas he hears. I can scarcely agree, but he does have a wonderfully resonant voice. There are the new buildings that constantly alter New York's skyline. Our well-kempt vagrant knows every major construction project in town and shows up at the exact moment some critical problem is to be solved. No, 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 a little more to the right. Say, does it look to you as if they're placing that girder properly? It doesn't right now, but they'll raise it another three feet and then force it to the right with a cross member. Oh, yes, yes, I see. Actually, it's a different technique than we're accustomed to watching in the usual steel skeleton construction. Yeah, seems to me there'll be too much strain on the cross member. No, I understand the alloy is both light enough and strong enough so that, in effect, they're employing a variant of the ancient Egyptian post and lintel method. Say, there are similarities, aren't there? You're an engineer, I take it. No, matter of fact, my master's was in economics. Is that so? I'm liberal arts myself, Yale 28. Instruction's sort of hobby of mine. <laughs> Watching it at any rate. Mine too. So much so that I've done quite a bit of reading on it. Uh, there. You see what they're doing now? That's how they equalize the stresses. So they do. Uh, your office in the neighborhood? No, it isn't. I just happen to be passing this way. Uh, mine's just across the street, 230 Park. I'm H.J. Chisholm, Regal Paper Company. How do you do, sir? I'm Henry Shelby. Hello. You with the firm, or are you in business for yourself? Neither. I don't have a connection right now. Is that a fact? Well, if you're looking, why don't you stop by the office whenever it suits you? We might very well have something for a chap like you. That's mighty nice of you, Mr. Chisholm. I'm not really looking at present, but I'll certainly remember you when I am. I wish you would. Say, wouldn't it save time and an extra piece of heavy equipment to haul those I-beams up on the construction elevator and then place them with one of those small hoists? It seems that it would at that. I think you have something there, Mr. Chisholm. And I'm going to look into it the next time I'm at the library. The Public Library. One of Henry Selby's favorite haunts. A fellow vagrant once advised him that the library was a good place to keep warm on a cold day. 
But he found it to be much more than that. On his first visit to the massive old building at 42nd and 5th Avenue, he asked for a copy of the New York Times for November 10th, 1936, and was referred politely to the microfilm room. Here you are, sir. Are you familiar with the operation of the viewing machine? Uh, Not particularly. I'll be happy to show you. The entire edition is on this roll of film. You place it in the machine, attach the end, and thread it this way. Close the machine and turn the handle forward. Yes, it's fine. You sit right down here, use the headrest, and view the film through the aperture. Yes, I see. Very clear and very comfortable. Yes, isn't it? It rather makes research a pleasure, doesn't it? I should say so. Uh, What if I fall asleep? Well, I'm afraid no one would awaken you if you did. There seem to be so few of you scholars taking advantage of our microfilm facilities. Just come to the desk if you wish additional rolls. Say, how long has this been going on? Henry Shelby was asleep in 15 minutes and awoke undisturbed five hours later. For some time, the microfilm room was at the top of his list as a place of shelter. Then suddenly he realized it was a far more valuable place for pure entertainment. He has read all the issues of the Times available on film, all his favorite comic strips from the date of their inception, all the columns Damon Runyon ever wrote, and has even developed a system for playing the horses. One time, he worked long enough to accumulate $25, and with it, visited Aqueduct Racetrack. Now entering the winner's circle is Time You Told Me, written by Jockey Farrell Zufeld. The time for the mile and a sixteenth was 1.43 and 2. And the result of the eighth race is now official. 11.20 to win. Let's see, that makes me $87.40 ahead for the day after expenses. Well... How long has this been going on? Very prudently, Henry Shelby bought himself a new suit of clothes, leaving his original $25 untouched. A few days later, he visited Belmont Park and lost the entire sum. I still play the races in the microfilm room. During the winter, I study the preceding summer's entries, make my selections, and check them against the results in the following day's paper. I never look at the results in advance. Might just as well be honest about it. Yes, New York offers many diversions. There is the waterfront, the ferry boats, the slips where the huge liners dock. I come down here a couple of times a week. I always try to be around when the Mary or the Elizabeth are coming in. Now, what's that Weehawken ferry doing a quarter mile off her course? Just sightseeing, I'll bet. Or her captain ought to have his confounded papers picked up. Shelby enjoys the ferry boats, all of them, but his favorite is the Staten Island ferry. There's nothing quite like it in the world. Outward bound from the battery, there's the thrill of passing the Statue of Liberty. And coming back... Miss Liberty welcomes you home as the incredible skyline of lower Manhattan hangs shimmering in the haze, like the pleasure dome of Kublai Khan. Where else can a poor man get such an ocean voyage for a dime? Of course, ten cents for one round trip does put the Staten Island Ferry in the luxury class, but during the rush hours, Shelby has discovered 
that he can board the Jersey Central ferries across the Hudson and make three or four trips for the same dime without being noticed. This kills time and also furnishes amusement, for Shelby quietly enjoys criticizing the pilots who do not bring their vessels squarely into the slips. Among other things, Henry Shelby has become an expert on the management and conduct of New York Harbor. And uh, then there are the parades. New York City is the only place where there is a parade of some sort every day. That's one of the reasons Henry Shelby is happier here than he would be in any other city in the world. I just love band music. Why, last Armistice Day, I saw five different parades and even marched in one. I carried the front end of the bass drum and got $3 for doing it. So, the patternless pattern of Henry Shelby's days and the days of perhaps thousands like him, men who choose to work only enough to maintain a bare thread of personal existence in a society that clamors for workers and rewards them with possessions and security and the same comfortable resting place each nightfall. Where does Henry Shelby sleep? A clean hotel bed is a once-a-month extravagance to him. Perhaps he trudges to the Pennsylvania station and boards an 8th Avenue subway train at about 1 o'clock in the morning. That's why his cash minimum is 15 cents, the price of a subway token. He settles himself in the almost empty front car and drops off to sleep. He awakens before he reaches the end of the line, has a smoke, boards another train, and sleeps to the other end of the line. He has several standard trips mapped out, J Street to Queens, back to the Brooklyn end of the line, up to the tip of Manhattan, back to Penn Station. In five hours, he has probably netted four hours sleep. He has learned the habits of the transportation police, and he tries to keep himself from becoming too familiar a figure. That's why I use the subway maybe only every other night, or not quite that often. In warm weather, there are fire escapes, some of them covered, and Central Park and Prospect Park. And when it's really hot, there are the beaches. No one ever bothers you there. Always plenty of legitimate sleepers trying to beat the heat. When it rains and when the New York winter comes, there are other carefully cataloged places for shelter and a few hours sleep. Grand Central, Penn Station, the Port Authority bus terminal, hotel lobbies. There are rules of conduct for each, and Henry Shelby knows and observes them all. On rare occasions, he's questioned, but he always has the answers. Come on there, mister. Hmm? Come on, wake up, up, uh, up, up. Oh, well, I certainly dozed off, didn't I, officer? You certainly did. You think this is a flop house? Of course not. It's very obviously Grand Central Terminal. That it is, and we don't allow bums to nap their bibs in here. Bums? I ought to resent that, officer. Well, resent it all you like. Seems to me I've seen you in here before. Well, that's quite possible. I take the two o'clock local for Poughkeepsie almost every night. I missed it tonight, so I'm waiting for the next train. Uh, 6-5, I believe it is. It is. Can you prove you're not a vag? A what? A vagrant. You got any money on you? Why, yes. Uh, let me see Six, seven, eight dollars. And here's my ticket to Poughkeepsie. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd better get going, mister, or you'll miss your train. What? Yes, it's two minutes after six. Oh, I had no idea. I nearly overslept. That you did. Thank you so much for awakening me. Not at all. That's what I'm here for. Yes. 
Well, I must say you're right on the job. You bet I am. That's gate nine, mister, the Poughkeepsie local. Yes. Well, I don't want to miss it this time. No, you don't. So, for the first time, Henry Shelby had to take the train for Poughkeepsie under the suspicious glare of the railroad cop. But the ticket was never punched, for he got off the train at 125th Street to begin another day of Manhattan meandering. Henry Shelby is never without three tickets. One to Poughkeepsie, one to Princeton, and the third to Elizabeth, New Jersey. His operating equipment for sleeping in the three major terminals. Why does this strangely bewildered, yet far from hopeless man, live apart from responsibility and the place he could so easily regain in working society? How many weeks, or months, or years will he continue to walk the streets of Manhattan? I don't know how long I'll live this life. I don't have much trouble. I've never gotten drunk and lain in a doorway all day. I've never been on a police blotter. I've never had to beg. Things seem so easy and natural, just as though they were supposed to be this way. I'm not going to look at the future. All I know now is that at six o'clock, I'm going to be at a little delicatessen up on Broadway where they serve a mighty fine boiled beef dinner for 68 cents. And I'd better get going. Takes me almost an hour to walk it. Why don't I take the subway? Why, subways are for sleeping. The CBS Radio Workshop is produced in Hollywood by William N. Robeson and was tonight directed by Mr. Robeson. Subways Are for Sleeping was based on the Harper's Magazine article by Edmund G. Love and was adapted for the workshop by Fran Van Hartisfeld. Henry Shelby was played by Byron Kane and the narrator was William Keneally. Also heard in the cast were Sarah Selby, Helene Burke, Edwin Bruce, Frank Gerstel, Court Falkenberg, Tony Barrett, Ted Bliss, and Alan Reed. The original score was composed and conducted by Fred Steiner. Next week, from New York, the workshop will present Only Johnny Knows, a survey of child training from the birds and the bees era of wonderful innocence a century ago to the complex and guilt era of today's psychiatric sophistication. Brilliant performance of the rarely played Symphony No. 6 in D minor by Jan Sibelius with Nils Erik Fugstad conducting the Sibelius Festival Orchestra is yours for the listening this Sunday when World Music Festivals comes your way on most of these same stations. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed over most of these same stations by My Son Jeep. America listens most to the CBS Radio Network.
Subways Are for Sleeping, adapted by the CBS Radio Workshop in the summer of 1956. On our Facebook page, we have a link to the original short story on which that show was based. Think of it as a public service from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. I mentioned at the top of the show that we're going to hear radio versions of a couple of Academy Award-winning movies tonight, but that's not quite true. The Radio City Playhouse drama we're about to hear is an adaptation of a short story by Mary Orr, and it actually precedes the classic movie iteration that won six Oscars, All About Eve. This half-hour radio play stars Marilyn Erskine, We heard Ms. Erskine as one of the young actors on Let's Pretend earlier tonight. She's still with us, and today is her 96th birthday. So, by way of celebration, here she is as the title character in The Wisdom of Eve. It comes from January 24, 1949, a year before the movie All About Eve, and the NBC series Radio City Playhouse. The National Broadcasting Company presents Radio City Playhouse, Attraction 24. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the director of Radio City Playhouse, Harry W. Duncan. Thank you, Bob Warren. Friends, tonight's story, The Wisdom of Eve, is adapted by Miss Mary Orr from her story of the same name, which appeared in Cosmopolitan Magazine. We're happy to have a script by this very talented writer on Radio City Playhouse. With her husband, Reginald Denham, Miss Orr is co-author of the Broadway hit Wallflower, which later became a Warner Brothers picture. In Miss Orr's story... The part of Karen Manners is played by Miss Claudia Morgan, one of radio's most talented actresses. We're very happy to welcome Miss Orr as an author and Miss Morgan as an actress to Radio City Playhouse. We hope that their first appearance will not be their last. Here, then, is The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr, starring Claudia Morgan as Karen. Attraction 24 on Radio City Playhouse. listening to the radio last night, perhaps you heard what Ronnie Dawson, the famous Hollywood commentator, had to say about Eve Harrington. But of course, ladies and gentlemen, the most thrilling story in Hollywood this weekend is unfortunately news no longer. You've read it splashed across your Sunday papers, the fabulous and heartwarming story of Eve Harrington, who with nothing but talent to help her, has risen in one short year from a stage struck unknown to the most loved, most sought after most talented actress Hollywood has seen in a generation. She was so hauntingly lovely, with that petal-like skin and those great, sad blue eyes. I first saw Eve Harrington a year ago. Lloyd, my husband, was the author of the play in which Margot Cranston scored such a triumph. Margot and I are friends, and frequently after performance, I drop into Margot's dressing room to say hello. This particular day, 
Eve Harrington was lurking outside the stage entrance with only a pathetic little red coat to protect her from the January weather. I'll always remember that pathetic little red coat at the stage entrance. Mrs. Richards, Mrs. Richards. Yes? You are Mrs. Richards, aren't you, the wife of the playwright? Yes, I am. Would you please, please take me in to meet Miss Cranston? Please, if I could just get into her dressing room and talk to her. She's allergic to strangers, child. Perhaps if you let me have your autograph, who No, Mrs. Richards, I want to talk to her. Please, please. Well, I... Oh, please, Mrs. Richards. Well, if it means that much to you, come along. Now, mind you, I can't guarantee anything. Oh, I know, Mrs. Richards, but you're her friend. You never can tell what mood Margot will be in. Isn't she simply wonderful, Mrs. Richards? Isn't she? You poor kid. You've really got a crush on her, haven't you? Well, I think she's the greatest actress I've ever seen. Well, wait here and I'll see if she wants to talk to anybody. I've got all the time in the world, Mrs. Richards. I may not be able to work it. Hello, Margot. Can I come in? Karen, darling, bless you. Come in, come in. Did you bring the new draft of Lloyd's play for me to read? I did. I hope you like it. hope he's made Cora a little more mature. Oh, Margot, you're not too old to play Cora. Lloyd thinks you can play anything. Well, darling, I should hope so. I always have. And I? Margot, there's a kid outside who's dying to meet you. She goes into a trance at the mere mention of your name. Oh, get rid of her, Karen. I'm in no mood for autograph hunts today. I'll oh, be a sport, Margot. She's just a skimpy kid in a moth-eaten red coat. Give her a break. Red coat and little red berry? Yes. Do you know her? That spray's been haunting the stage entrance today. She must be crazy. All right, bring her in. Don't suppose she'll mind if I'm all over cold cream. She's such a wistful little thing. I feel sorry for her. Hey, Red Riding Hood. You can come in. Thanks, Mrs. Richards. Well, come on. Come on. This is Miss Cranston. Miss, um... Uh, Harrington. Eve Harrington. How do you do? Oh, Miss Cranston, this is a dream. Am I actually in your dressing room? I can't believe it. I've seen the play 14 times, and you're even more beautiful than I imagined. You're not serious. Not 14 times. Oh, I only buy standing room. I go without my lunches to save the money. The ushers know me now. They save me a place. Have you honestly seen this play 14 times? I just can't help it, Miss Cranston. You're so wonderful. Hmm. It's very touching. Isn't it, Karen? Touching hardly describes it. What do you do for a living, Miss Harrington? I'm a stenographer, Mrs. Richards. But my real life begins when I come to the theater to watch Miss Cranston. Well, my dear, I, I haven't been so flattered in years. I Look here, how would you like to come back to my apartment to have some supper? My husband's out of town, and we can be all alone and talk about my acting. Oh, Miss Cranston, that would be the most wonderful thing that could possibly happen to me. I, I couldn't think of anything that... That would make me happier. So that's the way I met Eve Harrington. A pathetic little stage-struck kid with that soft, childlike loveliness. Margot, of course, being only human, was touched and flattered by the adoration. I'm fond of Margot. Without her, Lloyd's plays might have run two weeks instead of two years. Margot was a genius. She had that 
solid gold type of talent, the, the talent that comes from a brilliant mind working terribly hard. Sometimes she was temperamental, sometimes affected, sometimes downright disagreeable. But she was good company and a good sport, and by and large, we got along splendidly. For about three weeks after this, I didn't see Margot. And then one afternoon, I thought I'd just drop up to her apartment and have a gossip. I'd completely forgotten Eve Harrington. Completely forgotten her. That's why I was so surprised when she answered the door of Margot's apartment. Well, if it isn't little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> what are you doing here? Hello, Mrs. Richards. Do come in. Thank you. Why? But you're looking ravishing. It's because I'm so happy, Mrs. Richards. Miss Cranston has engaged me as her secretary. I take messages, answer fan mail, send out pictures. Well, it's about time Margot had someone to take care of the correspondence. She still hasn't acknowledged a Christmas present I sent her in 1942. <laughs> She's so wonderful. Sit down, Mrs. Richards. Miss Cranston's in the bath, but she'll be out shortly. Shall I tell her you're here? Oh, that can wait. Tell me about you. Oh, it's so wonderful. I go to the theater with her every night and stand in the wings and study her and watch her. Well, why do you want to study her? Oh, dear, I guess I've let it slip out. Let what slip out? Oh, Mrs. Richards, I do so want to act someday. You don't know what it's like to want something so badly that... Well, that you can hardly stand it. I know I've got talent. I know I have. I lie awake at night dreaming that, that I'm Margot Cranston, that I'm taking the bows, hearing the applause. I've learned every word of her part, every gesture, every movement she makes. And you know, Mrs. Richards, I could do that part. Eve. I could. I've taken it down in shorthand. If only she'd let me understudy her. If she'd only give me a chance to know what I could do, I... Eve. I don't like this. Margot thinks you're her secretary. And already you've designs on her job. I don't think it's honest, and I don't like it. But, Mrs. Richards, I don't mean any harm. I wouldn't do anything to hurt Miss Cranston for the world. Does Margot know you want to act this badly? No. Well, why don't you tell her? I'm afraid. You think she'd help me? Well, She I... wouldn't. Oh, I don't know what to think. Sometimes I think it's awful of me not to let her know, and other times I... Mrs. Richards, what will I do? I want so terribly to act. I don't want to be deceitful. I think you should tell her. She'll think you've lied to her. You never once let on you were interested in a stage career yourself. Mrs. Richards, when you were young, I mean when you were my age, didn't you ever want anything so badly that it almost made you sick? My dear child, we've all wanted things. All of us. There isn't an understudy now. If Miss Cranston was sick, the show just wouldn't go on. Couldn't you ask her to let me take her part in the understudy rehearsals? Couldn't you? Eve, my dear, Margot is never sick. She's as tough as a truck. She's got germ-resistant bumpers. <laughs> but it would be such a wonderful experience. Oh, I know I'd never get to play the role, but couldn't you just suggest that I... Well, not say anything about my wanting to act? You're very sweet, Eve, and very young. I'll see what she says. She won't let me do it if you say I want to understudy her. It's got to be that I just want some extra money. Oh, Mrs. Richards, please, please help me. It won't do any harm. I could never hope to ever play the role, but I'd learn so much. And there's so much for me to learn. And I want to so badly. Please. Well, I'll see. And you won't tell her I want to be an actress. What harm can that do? 
I'm just a nobody, and she's famous. If I lose this job, I'll have to go back to stenography. Please, don't give me away. <laughs> no, I won't give you away. I promise. The girl made my heart ache. It made me remember when I was 22 how I wanted to be an actress. But nobody ever took an interest in me. Eve didn't mean any harm. She was just a stage-struck kid. After all, what harm could it do to Margot to let the kid take part in the understudy rehearsals? And it would make Eve so happy. I wanted to see Eve happy. I liked her. I felt sorry for her. She was so sweet and, and so young. I brought the subject up in Margot's dressing room a couple of days later. By the way, Margot, there's something I wanted to ask you. Lloyd and I came to the understudy rehearsal this morning. They're pretty handicapped because there's nobody to read your part. We never thought it necessary to engage an understudy for me. If I couldn't go on some night, the show just wouldn't open. I know, dear, but it would be a help to the cast if somebody read your part. I was wondering if... What? Well, that little secretary of yours. Why not pay her a few extra dollars to read your part at the understudy rehearsal? She could probably use the money. Well, she probably could at that. It's, it's decent of you, Margot, to take her under your wing. Strangely drawn to her. You know, I've a hunch she's stage-struck. She wants to act, poor kid. I don't think she's too talented, either. Then you wouldn't mind her reading your part? My dear Karen, why should I? Let her do it. You'll give her some extra money, and it may prove to her that it isn't as easy as it looks. You know, it's funny about Eve. What? If I asked her to jump in front of a taxi, I believe she'd do it without a qualm. got the chance to read Margot's part. Two weeks later, I dropped in at an understudy rehearsal to watch her. I was completely staggered. The girl was sensational. She had everything. She had looks, brains, talent, everything. I came away from the rehearsal with a lump in my throat because I had a feeling that Eve would never make it, never achieve success. She wasn't tough enough. She was too delicate, too honest. I wanted to give her the benefit of my experience, the benefit of 15 years spent knocking around with theater people, knowing how things worked, how tough you've got to be. One night, Lloyd came home trembling with rage and hurt feelings. He'd had a row with Margot. I'd never seen him so Of all the egotistical, disagreeable, foul-tempered, broken-down old bags I've ever met in my 15 years in the theater... Margot breaks every record ever set. Now, for... darling, calm down. Take it easy. He threw a hairbrush at me. Oh. Threw it at me. Well, Lloyd. Tore the script in half, jumped on it, and darn near brained me with a hairbrush. She's crazy, absolutely crazy. Well, I know Margot's a little difficult sometimes, but you've just... Difficult? She is nuts. I never saw such an exhibition of temper in my life. Lloyd, why don't you just break with her? Why put up with it? Ah, that's the trouble, Karen. I've got to put up with it. I need her. We both need her. 
She may be the devil on wheels, but she's still the best actress in New York. I felt sorry for Lloyd. He's sensitive and a fine writer. But I felt Margot behaved pretty badly. I decided that perhaps it wouldn't hurt Margot to be taken down a peg. Maybe you'll think that's being petty and nasty, but when you love your husband and see him being made miserable by a temperamental actress, you sometimes do things you're sorry for. So I tipped Eve off, told her what I was going to do. Then I invited Margot up to our place in Meadowbrook for the weekend. Then I... I deliberately made her miss the train back on Monday. It was a rotten trick, I suppose, but... Well, I figured it wouldn't do Margot any harm. What's missing one performance? Well, we... We had to drive back through a blizzard and we got to the theater in time to see Eve play the final ten minutes of the last act. She was wonderful. I'd told her what critics to call, and they'd all turned up. The next day, Eve gave an interview to the columnists that almost turned my stomach. I just couldn't imagine her saying such things. I couldn't imagine that gentle, soft little voice being so cruel, being so heartless, and so calculated. Well, you see, gentlemen, I was never a fan of Miss Cranston's in my heart. Of course, I admire her no end, but her art doesn't come from inside. It's not profound. It's an external surface thing, a veneer of shallow technique. And anyway, this part calls for youth, and, well, I have youth. Whereas Miss Cranston, let's face it, is no longer an ingenue, even if she thinks she is. That's the trouble with the theater today. Practically every play is miscast with middle-aged women playing young virgins of 22 because those actresses are names like Margot Cranston. when I read it. I couldn't believe it. It was incredibly cruel. Well, of course, Margot and Eve had a showdown. By the time Margot got through with her, Eve Harrington was in shreds. Margot kicked her out bodily. As for me, I... I felt badly. I'd placed temptation in Eve's way and then hadn't told her how to behave, how to handle success. However, I decided I'd... I'd just been wrong about the girl, that she was really pretty cheap. I forgot about her. Margot never found out about the train-missing business, and the whole incident was forgotten. Then, one day, about three months later, Eve Harrington forced her way into the apartment, passed the maid, and right into my bedroom. She'd tried to talk to me on the phone, but I'd refused to speak to her. I'd told her the maid, I'd told the maid I just wasn't at home to Eve Harrington, no matter what she wanted. Mrs. Richards, I know you don't want to see me, but I've got to talk to you. I've just got to. I forced my way past your maiden. I've just got to talk to you. I'm afraid there's nothing to talk about. But there is. There is. Please. Oh, I've been so miserable. I've hated myself. I'm not in the mood for a scene. If you want to behave yourself, you may sit down and talk to me for exactly five minutes. Then you have to go. Now, what do you want to say? Mrs. Richards, I've no more money. None. How unfortunate. I've only got a dollar left. Well, I'm sorry. Well, it was your fault. It was your idea that I go on that night. You told me to get those critics. Why didn't you tell me what to say? My fault. Now, look here, Eve well, Harrington. Well, it was. I was just a scared kid from Milwaukee. Why didn't you tell me what to say? How to behave? 
You should never have let me make such a fool of myself. I thought I was being smart. And you only succeeded in being stupid and I ridiculous. I know, I know. Don't you think I know that? It was a hateful, horrible thing to do. Margot Cranston had been kind to me, and, and I repaid her by, by being... Well, every time I think of it, it makes me sick. Well, I'm glad you've the decency to be sorry. I'm not really that way, Mrs. Richards. I'm not really mean and hateful. Come now, Eve, it isn't that bad. I've been horrible and, and mean and nasty, and I wish I was dead. Please, Eve, please, stop crying. I have no money. Well, I can I... let you have a little money. Oh, what's the use? I might just as well starve. Just by this one silly, horrible mistake, I've ruined my whole career. It went to my head, Mrs. Richards. I, I just didn't know what I was saying at that interview. With all those people listening to every word I said, writing it down, I, I just didn't know what I was saying. Oh, can't you believe that I didn't really mean it? That I'm sorry? That I didn't really mean to hurt Miss Cranston? Can't you believe that? Eve, maybe this has done you some good. Believe me, I'm sorry for you. But maybe you've learned an important lesson. Maybe you've learned what integrity means. Maybe you've learned that if you kick people too hard on your way up the ladder... They kick you on your way down. Oh, I have. I have. Honestly, I have. Well, leave me your address and I'll send you some money in the morning. I don't want charity, Mrs. Richards. What do you want? I've no right to ask it, Mrs. Richards, but I saw in the papers that Mr. Richards' new play is being cast. There's nothing in it for you, Eve. Mrs. Richards, I read that play when your husband left it for Miss Cranston to read. I understand she refuses to do the part. I'm afraid that's true. I could do it. Eve, don't be ridiculous. Cora's a lead. Lloyd wants a name. As a matter of fact, he wants Margot, but she won't touch it. She couldn't do it. Really? I could, Mrs. Richards. I'm young. Cora's a young girl. She's young and intense, and, well, she's just like me. I know she is. I know that I'm Cora. But couldn't you please ask Mr. Richards to let me read for him? That's all. Just let me read it. If he doesn't like me, I'll never bother you again, I promise. Well, Eve, I don't know. I've learned my lesson, Mrs. Richards. I promise I'll never do anything mean or dishonest again, ever, ever as long as I live. If you'll just please let me read for that part. Well, Eve, Oh, just I... let me read for it. If I'm not right, I'll go right back to Milwaukee. I'll give up. But I've just got to read for that part. I've got to. She was so pathetic sitting there on my bed. So terribly young, so terribly earnest. I felt almost old enough to be her mother. Even though I'm only 36, Eve made me feel as old as the world. This was youth, wanting, suffering, aching for success, longing for recognition. I'd become happy and calm. I was content to be a good wife to a fine playwright. I wanted nothing more out of life. I'd forgotten that when I was her age, I wanted to act too. She brought it all back to me. Basically, the girl was decent. I was convinced of that. Basically, she was a sweet, misguided kid that had let one little success go to her head. So I asked Lloyd to read her. He did. I sent her $100 in the mail. She bought herself a decent dress and went down a week later and read the part of Cora. I had no idea what Lloyd would think of her. I'm glad you're back, Johnny. I know you're bad. I know you're bad and I don't care. Can't you understand that? I know you're bad, and I just don't care. 
thank you, Miss Harrington. Thank you. Did you like it? As a matter of fact, I like it very much. I like it so much that... Well, you see, I always consult Mrs. Richards before I cast, before I make a final decision. I'd like you to read again next Thursday. I'll have Mrs. Richards come down and hear you, too. If she likes you, the part's yours. I'm reading for both of you tomorrow. Eve, don't count too much on us. I really can't promise you anything. You're still good friends with Miss Cranston? Of course we're good friends. We disagreed about Cora, but Margot's going on tour with the Ten Divines next week. She'll probably tour for a year in it. I see. I wish I could be sure that Mr. Richards would cast me. I've run up a few bills. I mean, on the strength of getting the part, I've bought some clothes. Eve, dear, you're such a child. You mustn't count on it. You just mustn't. You've never got a part until the contract's signed. I'd hate to see you disappointed. Lloyd liked you very much, but he's also considering another girl. I think it's between the two of you. I'll honestly have to tell him if I like the other girl better. I'm sorry, Mrs. Richards. I can't risk that. Uh, well, I don't quite understand what you mean. I hate to do this, Mrs. Richards, but I think you'd better choose me. I beg your pardon. It would be very awkward for you if Miss Cranston decided she didn't want to take your husband's play on tour, wouldn't it? What are you trying to say? Just that it would be very unfortunate if Miss Cranston broke up her business association with you and Mr. Richards. Go on, Eve. Well, I think Miss Cranston would be very annoyed if I told her that you'd made her miss the train that night. She's always wondered how I managed to get the critics there. How I knew in advance that I'd be playing the role. You see, I phoned the critics Monday morning. Miss Cranston didn't miss the train until Monday evening. Don't you think it would be rather unpleasant? Why, you cheap little... Temper, temper, Mrs. Richards. If the truth were to come out, I don't think Miss Cranston would ever do one of your husband's plays again. Why, I don't think she'd go on tour with the Tender Vines. After all, she doesn't need the money. You do. Don't you? You dirty little blackmailer. What a stupid fool I've been. You're quite an actress, Eve. I was actually feeling motherly towards you. Just for the record, is there anything you wouldn't do to get a party? Not that I can think of, Mrs. Richards. I told Lloyd to give her the part, and he did. He coached her, worked with her, and he did the job so well that for the first time in his career he had a hit without Margot Cranston. Everybody went crazy about her. She was so sweet, so charming, so talented. Now she's gone to Hollywood. She's sensational there, too. Gracious, unspoiled, a sweet, unsophisticated, typical American girl. She's made two pictures already, both of them hugely successful. She's photographed in her pool, out of her pool, beside her pool, and... Well, that's the story of Eve Harrington. It's all just as Ronnie Dawson says. Hollywood columnists, of course, are always getting exclusive. They know the real story. I 
Asked you before if you'd heard Ronnie's broadcast last night, didn't I? It was really very interesting. Very interesting. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this wonderful young girl who's achieved such tremendous success as an actress crowned those triumphs today by marrying Lloyd Richards in Las Vegas, Nevada. Richards is the famous Broadway playwright who first encouraged Miss Harrington in her career. He is the recently divorced husband of Karen Manners, former stage actress. This story, ladies and gentlemen, in which a young girl with only talent and brains struggles up from the bottom with no help, no assistance, only her honest desire to make good, should prove an inspiration to all young actresses. It proves what I've always said, brains, talent, and above all, integrity always pay off. This is Ronnie Dawson saying good night to you from Hollywood. Congratulations, Eve. Stay up there. Yes, you'd better stay up there. You have just heard Radio City Playhouse, Attraction 24... The Wisdom of Eve, written by Mary Orr and directed by Harry W. Duncan. Claudia Morgan starred as Karen Manners. Eve was played by Marilyn Erskine. Other players included Connie Lemke, Lou Hall, and Mark Roberts. The music was composed and conducted by Dr. Roy Shield. Radio City Playhouse is supervised for the National Broadcasting Company by Richard P. McDonough. This is Harry Junkin again. Next week on Radio City Playhouse, the bleak and tragic story of Martha Hillman, an overweight, homely girl who missed everything that most women get and which all women want. We hope you'll listen to Machine next week on Radio City Playhouse. Good night, everybody. came to you from our Radio City studios in New York. Bob Warren speaking. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. The Wisdom of Eve, a predecessor of the movie All About Eve from Radio City Playhouse in the winter of 1949. It starred Marilyn Erskine as Eve, and Ms. Erskine is turning 96 years old this very day. Happy birthday, Ms. Erskine. This is The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kellen Quigley and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org.
Another birthday we're celebrating this week is what would have been the hundredth of Toots Tielemans, one of the most versatile of all jazz musicians and a master of the harmonica, born April 29, 1922. His virtuosity and sensitivity are on display in the score to a radio drama from just after the end of the Golden Age in the mid-1960s. Of Maestro Tielemann's work on the show, one old-time radio scholar has remarked, the harmonica playing sets the tone perfectly. That's no small feat, because the play is an offbeat prison drama called The Dance Hall. It comes from May 25, 1965, and the ABC series Theater 5. Come on in, Counselor. Yep. Sing out when you're ready, Mr. Stone. Thanks, Abby. Sing out. Kind of catchy. Maybe we should sell it to a record company, huh, Pete? Feeling better this morning, Coley. Does it show? It's hard to tell with you. You know, Counselor, I get the same feeling. Maybe this will help. I sent a new brief to the governor. So? It spells out that you were convicted on circumstantial evidence alone. I also refer to other murder cases in which conviction was obtained by circumstantial evidence and in which the judgment was reversed and the sentence commuted. The brief also reminds the governor that yours was a crime of passion. That makes it legal? You know better than that, Coley. But the sympathies of the public are with a man who's condemned for this kind of murder. Best friend, cheating, with a sweetheart, you know... Sort of a throwback to the unwritten law. Unwritten law. That's the best kind. What do you mean? Marginal or dead. Seems everybody but me knew they had a thing for each other. But no matter what kind of law, I'm sitting here in death row waiting to go through that last door tomorrow morning. Coley, that's what I'm trying to tell you. The jury convicted you on circumstantial evidence. No one saw you at the scene of the crime, and they never produced the murder weapon. They said I had a motive. What motive? You said yourself you didn't know what was going on. You were in an emotional blackout. Yeah. But everybody else knew what was going on. Or maybe... Maybe somebody else was jealous. Maybe she had other lovers. No. Not Marge. Or maybe it was a suicide pact between Marge and Al. Yeah. They shot each other and then threw the gun away. It may not have been a crime of passion at all. It may have been a simple robbery. And whoever did it panicked and killed them. But the tabloids wanted a sensation, so they cooked up the case against you. Too bad the judge and jury didn't see it that way. Nobody saw you go into Marge's apartment. Nobody saw you come out because you were never there. Never quit trying, do you, Pete? No, but we haven't got much time. Yeah, that's for sure. Coley, I don't know how I feel about the rules and evidence right now, but I know how I feel about human life. I'm going back to my office and call the governor and keep calling until he feels the same way, too. You think he'll listen? There's a chance. I want to believe it, Pete. More than anything else, I want to believe. Nobody knows how much a man wants to live. You will live, Coley. You will. You know what a death sentence does to a guy? It grinds you down every minute of every day of every night, no matter what else you try to think of or do. Wherever you look, there it is, the chair. Yeah, 
The check. Holy. Look, it, it's like something alive, Pete. But something you can't fight, a silent thing waiting for you all the time. Believe me, Coley, we'll win out. Live today like tomorrow will never come. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll be the big criminal lawyer. The wizard that cheated the chair, the champion of the doomed. You hold that against me, Coley? What do you mean? I love you for trying. I'll get back to the office now. I'm keeping a line open to the Capitol. Keep in touch. I remember what I said. Live like tomorrow will never come. Yeah. I'll remember. The Enter Five presents Mr. Frank Thomas Jr. in The Dance Hall. Feel like talking? My music that bad? No. It's just the... Dance hall blues. Dance hall? Well, that's where you're going first thing in the morning. They call it pre-execution chamber. Stone said I had nothing to worry about. Well, I hope he's right. Hate to lose the best neighbor I ever had. He's got to be right. Sure, sure. Willie, uh, you saw it once, didn't you? Yeah. Right in this old house, too. Never thought I'd be facing that same chair come next Thursday morning. What was it like? Huh? Tell me. No, kid, you don't want to hear about that. I do. It'll... It'll help. Help? Some help telling a man how he's going to burn. You got to, Willie. If I know what it's like, maybe it won't be too bad the second time around. Well, that's one for the book. Tell me. But Stone said... Never mind what he said. Most always on a Thursday, like tomorrow. Don't ask me why. Maybe they just like Thursdays. Thursdays. That was always date night for Marge and me. Made plans for the weekend. You get up with the birds. And the guards move you to the dance hall. Oh, how she could dance wild, laughing. She laughed a lot. They give you a haircut. Kind of close and neat. A new suit of clothes and (laughs) who needs them. And then you order your last meal. Mm-hmm. Anything you want. Sing, sing, room service. I'm not hungry. Haven't been you since You think I... that matters? They want to treat you good, pal. You're their star performer. What next? Oh, let's see. Oh, yeah. They send in the chaplain. Do I have to see him? You got a choice? Go on. The doc gives you a last check, like you was going to live forever. Yeah. And the chaplain stays with you all the time, right up to when the guards come for you. If your mouthpiece hasn't heard from the governor by then, it's curtains. Governor? I wonder if Pete's talked to him yet. One guard slits your right trouser leg. Another one says, come on. And you start the last mile with the chaplain leading the way. To the door? Yeah, to the door. They say, last mile. It's only about six steps. Funny thing about the door, they got a sign over it. Silence. As if anybody be gabby at a time like that. What does the chair look like? Like no chair you ever saw before. Blocky, made of wood with wide arms and a high back. You look around before you sit down and 
You see the witnesses. Witnesses? Sure, right in the same room. The guards sit you down, strap you in good and tight. Then they put a leather skull cap on your head. It's got a, a electrode in it. Strap another electrode on your right leg and put a leather mask over your face and there you are, all wired up like a pinball machine. I... I didn't know it'd be like that. Well, how else could they give you the juice? Go on. I never forget. The guard stepped back. Executioner watched from his hideaway. The doc stood beside the warden watching the guys breathing and... And when he exhaled... Boom! There was a buzzing sound. I don't want to hear anymore. Well, that's all there is, boy. But Pete will get me off. He said he would. He believes I'm innocent. Sure. Sure he does. He doesn't care whether or not I'm innocent, but he'll get me off. Uh, and uh, call it? What? Uh, just in case you ain't hungry when they bring in your meal tomorrow. Yeah? I'll be glad to take it off your hands. <laughs> to go to the dance hall. Have you heard anything from Stone? No, not yet. But maybe no news is good news. Maybe. Good luck, boy. Thanks, Willie. I won't forget you. I'm sure sorry, Coley. Like you said, maybe there's still hope. Yeah. You really don't think I've got a chance, do you, Happy? Well, look at it this way. If Mr. Stone had dug up any new evidence, he'd have shot it to the governor long before this. But it is new. I mean, Pete's found other cases like mine in the law books where a prisoner was sentenced to die and then later the sentence was commuted. Uh, maybe he can swing it. Uh, I sure hope so. Uh, here we are. Uh, you got to stay here in the pre-execution chamber. Yeah, the dance hall. Is that the door to the execution room over there? Yeah, this is it. <laughs> Nobody home, I guess. Why do they have to put a guy this close while he's waiting? Uh, now, try not, you know, not to look at it. Yeah, try not to look with it staring you right in the face. What time is it, Happy? It's 7.34. Three hours, 26 minutes to go. Uh, bring your, your breakfast now, Coley. No. Give it to Willie. What? You don't want anything? Cigarettes. Maybe coffee. Yeah, coming right up. Oh, morning, Reverend Fuller. And I don't need any Sunday school lessons. Morning, Happy. Yeah, I'll, I'll open up for you. Hello, Coley. Reverend. I thought we might have a little talk. It's all been said. Not exactly. You've heard from my lawyer? No. I'm speaking of a higher law. What kind is that? God's law, Coley. Look, Reverend, right now I'm up to here in law. Go away, will you? Leave me alone. I can bring you peace if you'll accept. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> Far from it. Maybe if you um, talk it out, you'll find peace. <laughs> 
You mean confess? Confession is good for the soul. I thought souls were your job, Reverend. Finding the way to God is an inside job, Coley, for all of us. We make our own hell, our own heaven. Heaven? You see that patch of blue sky up there in the window? Yeah. Well, that spells heaven to me, Reverend. Wide open, free, going on forever. That's a fair description of part of heaven. Loving Marge was part of heaven, too. But you killed her. They said it. I didn't. (laughs) Talking about law, Reverend, riddle me this. Now, if God's so legal, how come he let me fall in love with Marge? And I mean hard. And then let her two-time me with my best friend. Some questions have no answers. They're God's will. Ah, what kind of God is that? Marge was my life, like breathing. I was going to marry her. And that Al. We went to school together. We were like brothers. You didn't know anything about Marge and Al before? No. If they had lived, wouldn't you have wanted to know before marrying? What do you mean? You well, know, you loved your girl, but you didn't know her. Didn't I? Oh, I knew her. The way she walked, the way she tossed her head, hair flying, the way she laughed, her blue eyes... Flying blue eyes. Uh, well, wouldn't it have been worse if you'd learned about Marge after you married her? Worse? <laughs> I'm going to burn at 11 o'clock, Reverend. What's worse than that? You try to forget that, Coley. Forget the past, too. Think of yourself as you are now. A son of God who has sinned and yet has time to repent. Now, look, Reverend, I know you mean well, but you just don't get through to me. Now, like I said, heaven is that patch of blue sky. Love and Marge, even watching a good ball game. Even if I repent, can you give that all back to me again? I can give you much more, Coley. Forget it. What time is it? A little after eight. Oh, why isn't Pete here? Why hasn't he phoned? Hey, Bob is here, Coley. And got your new clothes, too. I'll come back later, Coley. Oh, Reverend, you can do something for me. Yes? Look, see if my lawyer's with the warden, or if he's called in. Of course. Uh, sit right here, Coley. Free haircut, huh? You, uh, you gonna shave my head? No, no, just give you a close trim. Neat. Well, maybe a flat top. Uh, put your clothes here. Thanks for nothing. Uh, get your coffee and cigarettes. Too bad. Too bad. What's too bad? It's a fine head of hair you've got, young man. Now, uh, inhale, Coley. Exhale. Shirt again. Well, what's the score, Doc? You're in perfect health, Coley. Blood pressure's a little high, but that's to be expected. Oh, no, Doc, get it down. Can't send anything second class to the chair. Try to take it easy, Coley. Doctor's orders? My last, I'm afraid. You won't be seeing me again. I get it. Next checkup, you'll be pronouncing me dead. Bye, Coley. Got anything to add to that? Yes, if you'd accept it. I can't understand why Pete doesn't show up. It, it's got to be bad news. Holy. And the door. Yeah, 
That door. Why do they have to put it so close to the dance hall? Why rub it in? Why don't you sit down? I'll be sitting soon enough. Have faith. There's still hope. Oh, words. Words, preacher. I want some answers. Like, like where's Stone as he walked out on me? Patience, Coley. Patience with that clock racing towards 11? With that, that, that door ready to open any minute? I'd like to see you in my shoes, Reverend. I hope I'd have the faith to accept his will. Someone's coming. Uh, uh, Pete? Open up, Happy. Come on, hurry. Yeah, sure. Sure, Mr. Stone. Well, what's the word? He turned you down again, didn't he? Wrong, Coley. The governor has commuted your sentence. Oh, thank God. He reviewed the case, but it was my last appeal that did it. I really pulled out all the stops on this one. I... I'm not going to die? That's right. I don't think he wanted the responsibility. All he wanted was any kind of an excuse to let you off. I'm not going to die. <laughs> nice going, Counselor. How do you feel, Coley? I think I'll sit down. Yeah. And you can thumb your nose at that door now. <laughs> it ain't going to open now. I'll leave you with your attorney now, Coley. But I, uh, I hope you'll think about our little talk. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Reverend. <laughs> now I'll, I'll have time to think. Well, I'll move you to a cell as soon as I get the orders, Coley. Good. I want to get away from that door. As far away as I can. Yeah. Uh, you coming, Rodwin? Right away. Congratulations, yeah. Mr. Stone. Thank you. Uh, makes you feel good when something like that happens. Reverend, you know, it's like getting a new lease on life yourself. Well, Coley, it's all over. Yeah. Thanks, Pete. To tell you the truth, I didn't think I'd get you off. You read about lawyers getting a man a reprieve at the last minute, but I actually did it. I did it. You know what, Counselor? Yes, Coley? It's no good. What? I thought I wanted to keep breathing more than anything else, but it's no good. What are you... T but you're alive. You're gonna live. <laughs> I died the day I found Marge with Al. I died when I killed him. Oh, Quit what are kidding, you? Counselor. You know I killed him. Coley, it doesn't make any difference. It's over. I'm dead. Whether I'm underground or in a cell, I'm dead. They should have finished the job. They should have killed me. You're insane. You don't know what you're saying. I, I, I thought I was afraid of that door. But I was waiting for it. I was waiting for the door to open. I'm going to call a guard. Come on. Open the door. Open the door. Holy, will you sit down? Let me in. Open that door. Let me in. <laughs>
Theater 5 has presented The Dance Hall, written by Virginia Marie Cook, directed by Ted Bell. In the cast, Frank Thomas Jr., Hugh Hurd, George Petrie, Eric Rhodes, and Arthur Cole. Harmonica soloist, Toots Thielman. Script editor, Jack C. Wilson. Original music by Ralph Herman. Orchestra under the direction of Glenn Osser. Executive producer for Theater 5, Mr. Lee Bowman. This is Fred Foy speaking. This has been an ABC Radio Network production. Theater 5 and the drama called The Dance Hall with harmonica soloist Jean Toots-Tielemans supplying the musical accompaniment. Toots-Tielemans, who passed away in 2016, would have turned 100 this coming Friday. It was a different death row drama, I Want to Live, in 1958, that brought an Academy Award for Best Actress to the often-nominated Susan Hayward. A decade before, she'd taken a role on the radio that had won a 1944 Oscar for another Best Actress, Ingrid Bergman. When the Screen Guild players adapted Gaslight for their broadcast, Ms. Hayward got the part, opposite the man who starred in the movie, Charles Boyer. We're going to hear that February 3, 1947 show now. It's Gaslight, the story that made that word a verb, from CBS and the Lady Esther Screen Guild Players. Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild Players. Lady Esther, Screen Guild play tonight, Gaslight, the starring players. This is Charles Boyer. And this is Susan Hayward. Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in Metro-Golden-Mayer's shocking and brutal study of murder and intrigue, Gaslight. It stars Charles Boye as Gregory and Susan Hayward as Paula. The Lady Esther Screen Guild players in Gaslight. Number nine, Thornton Square. A house in London. A house filled with many memories for me. With the echoes of music and laughter and happiness. And something else. With fear. Black, choking fear that I shall never forget. Number nine, Thornton Square. I hadn't seen it for years. Since I was 14. Since they sent me to Italy to live and study music. And forget the awful thing that had happened. 
It was taken for granted I should prepare for the opera. But I knew I'd never sing like Aunt Alice. Her voice had been one in a generation. Still, I might have gone on working and hoping if my teacher hadn't hired a new accompanist. His eyes were dark, and his voice was soft. Within two days, I was in love, and within two weeks, I was married. Paula. Paula, wake up. Come and look at the morning. It's much too lovely to sleep. I'm not asleep. I'm dreaming, but I'm not asleep. May I ask, what are you dreaming about? You and me, our life together, a lovely life, and every day starting with a morning like this. With the sun rising, lighting your hair as it does now. Ah, Paula, if I can only capture it all in my music. You will, darling. I know your concerto will be great and wonderful. When will you start on it, Gregory? Oh, one day when we've had our honeymoon and settled down in a home of our own somewhere. Where? Where would you like us to settle? I haven't thought. Paris, perhaps. Paris? Rome? How would you feel about London? London? <laughs> Paula, if you'll promise not to laugh at me. Of course I'll not laugh. What is it, darling? Oh, it's an idea, an idea that's been with me for years. I was in London once in the winter. I used to look at those quiet houses in the little London squares and long for a home like that with a woman I loved. Could we settle down in London? Not in a house in a square, perhaps, but... Paula, why do you look like that? Because there is a house in a square. What house? Nine Thornton Square. She left it to me. Oh, you mean Alice Alquist, your aunt? My mother died when I was born. I never knew anything about her or my father. I always lived with Aunt Alice. Then, after it happened, I never went back. But that house has been in my dreams for years. Oh, my dear. It's strange, though. I haven't dreamed of it since I've known you. I haven't been afraid since I've known you. Oh, Paula, if that is true, it makes me very happy. It is true. I'm not afraid anymore. I could even face that house with you. Oh, no, no, Paula, beloved. I wouldn't ask it. Yes, you shall have your dream, Gregory. You shall have your house in the square. Nine Thornton Square. The front door creaking open after ten long years. The windows all boarded up. The furniture under dust sheets like bulky ghosts. I was almost afraid to go in. But Gregory... Come, come, Paula. I don't stand there in the doorway. Gregory, will you light the gas, please? Mm, oh, of course. I hope the agent remembered to have it turned on. Yes, there we are. Oh, Gregory, to see it all like this. I remember this room full of flowers and light and people, and, and now it's all dead. It even smells of death. No, it only smells of dust. We'll get the windows opened. We'll soon be fresh again. Oh, Paula, what a lovely cabinet. That's where she kept all the little treasures. The things she collected on her tours around the world. The glass is broken. Yes, I know. It was broken that night. The things were all disarranged, but there was nothing missing. I knew everything in this case by heart. This fan. Oh, careful, dearest. Verdi gave her this fan. She carried it in Traviata. And this glove. She wore it in Romeo and Juliet. And afterwards, Guno signed it for her. See? I never knew what happened to the other glove. I used to ask her sometimes, and she'd only laugh and say that she'd given it away to a very great admirer. She'd never tell me. I wish I could have seen her. Let me show her to you. Here, help me take the dust sheet off. This was her favorite painting. What a magnificent costume. That is the Empress Theodora, her greatest role. When she sang it in St. Petersburg, the Tsar used to come to every performance. She was very beautiful, very like you. I 
found her there, beneath the portrait, in front of the fire. I was in bed, and something woke me. I came running down the stairs, frightened, as if I knew what had happened. Oh, Paula. She'd been strangled. Her lovely face, oh, all... Oh, darling, please, you mustn't do this to yourself. It's these things, Paula. They remind you of her, so... We'll put them away, and you'll see. This house will be happy again. Oh, I hope so. I hope so, Gregory. Where can we put them, Paula? Well, there's an attic under the roof. Her trunks are all up there, all her costumes. Well, then we'll put them in the attic and board it up. Everything. The painting, the furniture, the piano. Oh, not the piano. You'll need it to work. Though it must be horribly out of tune. Uh, shall we see? Yes, yes, it is. What makes you play that? Why not? That was her great song. She always used it for an encore in all her concerts. Oh, I suppose I must have heard of it. Of course. Oh, look, dear. Here's some of her music. The score of Theodora, just as she left it. And here's a letter. Dear Miss Alquist, I beg of you to see me just once more. I followed you to London to... Gregory, it's dated March 23rd. That was two days before she was... Where did you find that? In this score. She must have left it there. It's signed, Sir Gay Bauer. I don't remember any... Give it to me! Gregory, what is it? Why should this letter upset you so? I'm I'm sorry, Paula. I'm upset for you. All these things reminding you of her. You said that you had lost your fears and everything you touch here brings them back. Oh, Oh, my dearest. While you're afraid of anything, there cannot be any happiness for us. Forget her, Paula. Promise me. Of course, dear. If you ask it, I promise. Oh, Gregory, I'm so happy. What a wonderful idea to go for a walk. Well, it's been weeks since I've been out of the house. Well, the weather hasn't been very nice. I know, but... Well, sometimes it does get a little lonesome with you going off to your studio every night. Darling, I'm working on my concerto. I can work here. I know. But if we could just have some people in. Not a party, nothing like that. Paula, I thought we were still on our honeymoon. Oh, of course, of course we are. Paula, do you remember what day this is? How could I forget? Three months ago today. Yes, the three happiest months of my life. I have a present for you, Paula. Look. A cameo brooch. Gregory, where did you find anything so beautiful? It belonged to my mother, and before that to her mother. Now it belongs to you. I shall wear it always. Please, pin it on for me. No, I'm afraid the pin is not very strong. Perhaps you'd better not wear it till I have it mended. But, Gregory, I... You might lose it. You know, you are inclined to lose things, Paula. I am? I never realized it. (laughs) Just little things. I'll put this in your bag for safekeeping. Now, you'll remember where it is. Don't be silly. Of course I'll remember. I was teasing you, my dear. Let's go for our walk. I know just the walk, Gregory. When we leave the square, we turn right and... Oh, good afternoon. I... I'm so sorry. Who was that, Buller? I don't know. He started to lift his hat and I thought... Do you usually speak to people you don't know? No. I thought perhaps I might have met him somewhere. It really doesn't matter. Darling, here's where we turn. If we walk straight north, it's the loveliest view. That's strange. Like seeing a ghost. I could have sworn that... Good afternoon, Inspector. Inspector.
Inspector Tillman? Oh, hello, Williams. You on duty here? Yes, sir. No trouble, I hope, sir. None that I know of. Williams, did you see that man and woman just turn the corner? Yes, sir. Mr. and Mrs. Gregory Anton. Live here in the square, sir. Number nine. Number nine? Wasn't that where Alice Alton... Yes, sir. Uh, Mrs. Anton's her niece, sir. Come back here to live. Very quiet, sir. No guests. And Mrs. Hartley leaves the house. If you're well informed, they must have a good cook. <laughs> Elizabeth, sir. Middle-aged, rather dead. And the parlourmaid? Oh, Nancy, sir. Young and pretty. Uh, on the saucy side. Williams, you're not married, are you? No, sir. Not yet, sir. I want to know some more about that house, and you'll oblige me if you stay single for a while. Yes, sir. Anything for Scotland Yard, sir. Good day. Gregory, why did we have to come back so soon? I could have walked and walked. It is better not to overdo it, Paula. Not until you're quite yourself again. But I am myself. What did you mean? Mm, nothing important. But you have been acting rather strangely. I have? Well, speaking to people you don't know and forgetting things. Really, you've been quite forgetful lately. Forgetful? You know, losing things. And... <laughs> oh, it's nothing. You just get overtired. Yes, I, I suppose I do. Why don't you lie down and get some rest? I thought I would go over to my studio. The concerto is getting to the point where... Darling, you don't mind, do you? Of course not. Then I'll go along. Oh, uh, Paula... Uh, you might give me your brooch. I'll leave it to be repaired. Yes, I'll get it out of my purse. But, darling, tell them not to keep it too long. I can hardly wait till I... Yes, Paula? Paula, what's wrong? Gregory, I don't understand it. The brooch is gone. It's sheer nonsense, Cameron. The Alpha's case has been closed for ten years. And just because you see a woman who resembles her slightly... Not slightly, sir. She's the image of her aunt. That's got nothing to do with it. The case is over and done with. No clues, no suspects. And as far as the jewels are concerned, we... Jewels? There's nothing in the files about any jewels, sir. Mm, well, there were some jewels given by... Uh, well, by someone very highly placed. Some of the crown jewels of his... Uh... Well, now, it seems they were infatuated with each other sort of romance. Morganatic marriage, I believe. Very secret. Yes, but what happened to the jewels? We uh, never knew. We, uh... <clears throat> there were instructions to drop that part of the case. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Now, take my advice and forget the whole thing. Forget you ever saw this Mrs. Anton. That's rather difficult, sir, since I expect to see her tomorrow night. Uh, Lady Dalroy's music hour. Lady Dalroy? How did she happen to invite Mrs. Anton? Very simple, sir. I asked her to. Gregory, wasn't it sweet of Lady Dalroy to remember me? How could anyone forget you, dear? But I was only 14. Oh, darling, we'll have a wonderful time. Of course we will. I'll wear my new dress and put my hair up and... Gregory, what's the matter? Oh, Paula. What is it, Gregory? What is it? You, you mean you don't know? No. Look, at the wall. Yes. The little picture's been taken down again. Who took it down? Why was it taken down? Why, indeed. Why was it taken down before? Would you please get it from wherever you've hidden it and put it back in its place? But I haven't hidden it. I swear I haven't. I'll swear on the Bible. Go and find that picture. Perhaps behind the large chair. Sometimes... Yes. Here it is. So. 
You knew where it was all the time. No, I didn't know. I only looked there because that's where it was found twice before. I didn't know, Gregory. I didn't know. I think you'd better go to your room. Perhaps a few days in bed. But Lady Dalroy's music, Hal. It's tomorrow night. I've been looking forward oh, to it. Oh, my dear, you're far from well enough to go to the musical. I'll send it to all your regrets. of the Lady Esther Screen Guild play will follow in a moment. Now, a word from Lady Esther. Have you ever worn an unbecoming hat and hated it, but didn't know just why? Then suddenly you found the right hat, one that brought out all the good points of your face, and instantly it transformed your whole appearance. Well, you might make just as wonderful a difference in the appearance of your skin if you do one simple thing. Here it is. Skin specialists know that many women who think they give their skin good care never get it really clean. They don't realize there's a stubborn film on every woman's skin caused by natural oils mixed with cosmetics and dirt. You can't see or feel this stubborn film, and ordinary cleansing fails to remove it. You think your skin is clean when it isn't. Day after day, this invisible film clings, hiding the true freshness and beauty of your skin, Encouraging blackheads and blemishes. Here's the safe, sure way to remove that stubborn film. Smooth on my unique Lady Esther face cream and wipe it off. Immediately, and this is so important, apply Lady Esther cream again and wipe it off. This second cleansing with Lady Esther gets rid of that stubborn, clogging film. Now your skin is really clean. And instantly you see the difference. The clearer, fresher, younger look. You feel the new softness and smoothness. The very texture of my Lady Esther cream is unique. So soft, so effective. That's one reason why my cream cleanses so thoroughly. If you want compliments tomorrow, remove that stubborn film tonight. Lady Esther presents the second act of Gaslight, starring Susan Hayward and Charles Boyer. Number nine, Fulton Square. From that day on, the house was filled with a nameless terror. Little things, a handkerchief lost, a book misplaced. Things I couldn't explain or account for. Things that made my days a despair. And the nights when Gregory was away. A horror. Did you ring for me, Mum? Elizabeth, did you... Did you turn on the gas anywhere just now? No, Mum. I haven't touched it for hours. Is there any trouble, Mum? I... Here in my room, it, it seemed to dim for a moment. Well, uh, the pipes might be stopped up a bit, perhaps. Yes. Yes, that would explain it, wouldn't it? <laughs> Elizabeth. Elizabeth, don't you hear it? Hear what, Mum? Those sounds, those noises up there. Listen. There are sounds up there, aren't there? Like someone moving about. Please, Elizabeth, tell me you hear them. 
Well, Mum, the truth is I don't. But then my hearing's not very good, you know. No, that's right. You don't hear well at all, do you? Gregory. Gregory, please, I've got to get out of here. I've got to be with people, talk to people. Gregory, I'm afraid. Afraid? You never told me that before. I'm telling you now. I'm afraid of this house. I hear noises, footsteps. I imagine all sorts of things when you're not here. Yes, yes, I was afraid it would come to that. To what? Gregory, are you trying to tell me that I'm insane? It's what I'm trying not to tell myself. But it's what you think, isn't it? It's what you've been hinting and, and suggesting for months now. Ever since... Since what? Since the day I lost your brooch. That's when it began. No, it began before that. The first day here, the day I found that letter. Yes. Yes, I remember. I can still see you standing there and saying, Look, look at this letter. And staring at nothing. At nothing? You had nothing in your hands. But, but... Now, perhaps you will understand why I cannot let you meet people. Gregory. I've been thinking about it. Possibly I'm wrong to try to handle this myself. The case is one for people who are trained for such things. Paula, we shall have visitors. And shortly. A doctor? Two. Yes, I think that two is the required number. Same thing tonight, Williams. You're sure he followed the same route? Quite sure, Inspector. I was back at the post. He didn't see me as he went by. Came out of number nine, walked down the street, turned in at the alley, went round the back, and in through the rear of number five. Number five? It's empty, sir. Ah, and from number five, he could go across the roof to number nine, couldn't he? But that's his own house, sir. Why should he come out the front door and go to all that trouble to get back by way of the attic? I don't know why, Williams, but I'm going to find out. Don't let the gas go down again. Please, don't let it. No. No, make it go up again. Make it go up. Mrs. Anton. Mrs. Anton, Mum. Yes, Elizabeth. Uh, Mrs. Anton, there's someone here. I tried to tell him, but he it's wouldn't... quite all right. I'll explain it myself. Mrs. Anton. No, he isn't here. My husband isn't home. I know, Mrs. Anton. It's you I want to see. You... You're the man who... Well, I won't go with you. You can't make me go. Mrs. Anton, I want to show you something. Look at it, please. A white glove? Now read the inscription on it. To Brian Cameron, my greatest admirer, from Alice Alquist. It's the other glove from the case. She... she gave it to you? I was 12 then and infatuated. Now will you trust me? Yes. Is there anyone in the house besides us and Elizabeth? No. Why? Well, the gas just went down. I thought perhaps... The gas? You saw it too. Of course. Then it really happens. I don't just imagine it. Imagine it? The gas dimming down and the sounds in the attic. Every night when my husband goes out, I thought... Wait. Listen. Are those the sounds you mean from up there? Yes, yes, yes. Mrs. Anson, what's up there in the attic? All my aunt's things. Her clothes and stage costumes and trunks and furniture... But the door's boarded up. You can't open the door. There may be other ways. But who? You know, don't you? You know who's up there. Oh, no. No. He'll be coming back soon. Does he have a gun? In his room, in the desk. We'll have to hurry. Come along. Come along. 
No, nothing here. A pistol case, but it's empty. The chances are he's... Mrs. Anson, what is it? This, this letter. It was here in the drawer. I was right, there was a letter. And it was from Sergei Bauer. Sergei Bauer? I know that name. Yes, he was a young pianist played for Alice Alquist in Prague. Let me see that letter. Dear Miss Alquist, I beg of you to see me just once more. I followed you to London to... Mrs. Anton, I have a letter too. Here, have a look at it. Dear Lady Dalroy, I'm sorry that my dear wife's health is... Where did you get this? From Lady Dalroy. My my husband wrote this. He... Yes, I know. He also wrote this letter from Sergei Bauer. The writing is identical. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. No, you weren't going out of your mind. You were slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. But why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter and know too much. Or because he wanted you out of the way so he could search the house as he wished. Search? Search for what? For the jewels for which Alice Alquist was murdered. But nothing was taken. I have her jewels. There were others. Jewels you didn't know she had. The jewels he must have been looking for that night when Alice Alquist found him downstairs. Oh, no. No. Yes, I'm afraid he planned this whole thing. Finding you in Italy, your marriage, bringing you back here. Hola. What is this? Gregory. And you, sir? What are you doing in my room? I don't think it will need much explanation, Mr. Bauer. Bauer? Yes, Scotland Yard's been rather puzzled these last ten years. It seems... If you think you can take me... No, you don't. Uh, Williams, Williams, are you still waiting? Quiet here, Inspector. Well, you're hardly any use down there. Come along and truss him up. Gregory? Paula. Paula. Mr. Cameron said you asked to see me. Paula, if I could only put my arms around you once more, if I were not tied like this. Mr. Cameron said the jewels were in your pocket, Gregory. You must have found them just tonight. No, 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 Paula, it's not true. He's lying to you. Why should he lie to me? But because... Paula. Paula, do you remember our first days? Do you remember Italy? Yes. I remember Italy. One of the most beautiful days in your life and mine. Paula, we're going to have those days again. Come closer, Paula. Closer. Look into my eyes. If I ever meant anything to you, and I know I did, then help me, Paula. Give me another chance. Paula, in the drawer of that cupboard, there is a knife. Get it and cut me free. Will you do it, Paula? Will you set me free? Yes. I'll get it. I'll get it for you. The left-hand drawer. No, no, not that one. Don't touch that drawer. Why not? Why shouldn't I? Oh, please, Paula, please. That's strange. My brooch is here. What? The brooch I lost. And a handkerchief no. I couldn't find. And my watch that I misplaced. Paula, Paula, get the knife. Never mind these things now. But, Gregory, dear, I don't understand. Someone put eh? them here. But who? Oh, you must have put them there yourself. Oh, no. I've never opened this closet. Unless, unless I've forgotten. Yes, yes, that's it. You forgot. Paula, now get the knife. Oh, yes. The knife. The other drawer, you said. That's it, Paula. That's the one. Oh, I'm sorry. There isn't any knife here. Huh? But there is. You have it in your hand. A knife? In my hand? Yes. Yes. You, 
You're holding it. Can't you see it, Paula? Oh, Gregory, I'm so sorry. I must have lost the knife as I lost those other things. And now you're going to be angry, aren't you? No, 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 Paula, Paula, you wouldn't. It's really too bad, isn't it, Gregory? If I had that knife, I could cut you free. Paula. But since I haven't any knife, they'll come in and get you. They'll take you away. No. And you'll hang, Gregory. You'll hang just because I couldn't find the knife. No, no, you can't. You can't. Mr. Cameron. Yes, Mrs. Anton. Mr. Bauer and I have nothing further to say to each other. Will you take him now? Charles Boyer and Susan Hayward for an absorbing story. Believe me, we shall all remember your performances for a long time. Well, Mr. Bradley, we won't forget being here tonight either. An appearance with the Lady Esther Screen Guild players is always one of the highlights of the year for us. <clears throat> because we all know... <clears throat> excuse me. The magnificent work... I'm sorry, I... Would you... Ladies and gentlemen... We wish to thank Mr. Boyer and Susan Hayward for appearing here through the courtesy of the Motion Picture Relief Fund. Now, before we tell you about next week's show, here's a word from one of America's best-known beauty authorities, Lady Esther. If you eat something that doesn't agree with you, nature warns you by causing pain. And then you say, I'll never eat that again. Now, what's true about food is true about skin care. If what you're now using leaves your skin feeling dry, do you think your skin care is right? Nature is warning you there's something wrong. Why risk something which doesn't agree with your skin? Instead, use my safe, gentle Lady Esther cream. See the difference. See how my unique cream leaves your skin so much softer, smoother, the first time you use it. The very texture of my Lady Esther cream is unique, specially designed to soften while it cleanses. And here's something else which will help enormously to guard against dry skin. Use Lady Esther Cream as a powder base, as well as for cleansing. Let it help protect your skin all day long. Remember, my unique Lady Esther Cream is not just a cleansing cream. It's a for-purpose cream. It does four of the things your skin needs most. Cleanses thoroughly, softens your skin, helps nature refine your pores, and makes a perfect powder base. My cream needs no help from any other cream. Next week, the Lady Esther Screen Guild players will present Heavenly Days. It will star Fibber McGee and Molly. Be sure to listen. Gaslight was produced and directed for Lady Esther by Bill Lawrence, adapted by Harry Cronman, and was presented by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of Lady in the Lake, starring Robert Montgomery, Audrey Totter, and Lloyd Nolan. Tonight's play was based on the Broadway stage play Angel Street by Patrick Hamilton, produced and directed by Shepard Trowell. Charles Boyer is soon to be seen in the Enterprise production, Arch of Triumph. Susan Hayward will soon be seen in the Walter Wanger production, Smash Up. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure that you would be curious to know that Miss Hayward has been suffering from a cold and she had a slight indisposition. I'm glad you'd like to know. Music on tonight's program was arranged and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. This is Truman Bradley speaking for Lady Esther. Thank you and good night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
Gaslight, starring Charles Boyer and Susan Hayward from the Lady Esther Screen Guild Players in the winter of 1947. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. We're going to close with a tune from yet another Oscar-winning film and another nod to the centennial of Toots Tielemans. It's one of the most famous and successful main title songs in history. It was a top ten hit for the piano duo of Ferranti and Teicher, but the trail had been blazed by the original version, which almost made it to the Billboard Hot 100. Released on the Columbia Records label May 27, 1969, just two days after the release of the movie for which it was written, it's John Barry's studio orchestra with harmonica soloist Jean Toots Tielemans and Mr. Barry's theme from Midnight Cowboy. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Kellen Quigley, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.